Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you feeling? Oh, I, I'm hanging on by a thread. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, people um, who were watching didn't just see my facial expression when I asked her that question. Uh, it was loaded. It was a loaded question, if I'm yeah. being honest. Yeah. Yeah. Um... This is not my usual voice. It may seem that way, but if I was to talk in my usual voice, that would be this. So I have to lower my voice a specific amount of octaves to be audible. Right. Uh, I am unwell. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the most unwell I've been in years. Yeah. Years. And well, I... I think we can thank the pandemic for that, weirdly enough. Yeah, yeah I mean, that is, I, I know I got sick, not COVID, uh, but I got sick. Uh, it was about six months ago now, I want to say, maybe maybe a little, maybe seven. Um, but it, it was a shock to the, it was a literal and, and metaphorical shock to the system because I hadn't been sick the entire time. And so then you get sick again and you're like, oh, I remember this. This is awful. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And I should say, this isn't COVID. Yes. It's, uh, I, I self-diagnosed bronchitis. My doctor told me I was wrong. It's just a really bad sinus infection, which has <sighs> infected everything. Uh, so I've been mostly without a voice because purposely talking lower is more effort and energy than I care for. Of course. <laughs> so I've been uh, a, nothing but a whisper. For over a week, it's been a lot. There's been a lot of coughing. It's been a lot uh, to the point where this is being recorded 
probably the earliest in the day yep. that we've ever done, but the yep. latest in the grand scheme of how soon should we record an episode. The latest in the week. Yeah. Yeah. Like normally we're like Mondays is our go-to and I'll say it, it's Saturday. <laughs> and for those who've yeah. noticed, um, I I usually uh, will take pr- a promo and post it on a Saturday to be like, hey, this is the episode coming out. And I went to do that this morning and went, ah, shit, I don't have a promo because we haven't recorded the episode yet. So then I went, ooh, I guess I only have to do two promos. <laughs> but the, po- <laughs> the point is, uh, I had to scramble uh, and find something to post. So if you follow us on any or multiple of our uh, three social medias, you will have found a different video on each because I couldn't find the same one across the board. <laughs> I, I am who I am, folks. It's just what it Listen, is. Listen, but- I think you're knocking it out of the park. Yeah. My God. Yeah, it was one of those yeah. things where all week it was like, hey, we can push it by another day. And then it was like, how you feeling now? Ooh, ah, oh gosh. Uh, so I just want to give a very heartfelt, kind shout out to our editor, Tony Thaxton, the best in the game, mm-hmm, uh, really mm-hmm. kindly. I explained the situation and could not have been more accommodating. Um, always just a pleasure uh, for me to handle a deal with. Um, and uh, he helps us every week and certainly is helping us this week. Uh, so shout out mm-hmm. to Tony. Great guy. Great guy. Oh, oh, 100%. 12 out of 10. 12 uh, out of 10. Shout out to Tony and shout out to Lauren Ash. <laughs> for moving around her schedule, moving things. Because, see, that's not, that's just it. It's not just, are you well enough to record? Um, which I've had days where it's just nonstop coughing, and I'm sure I will cough at some point during this, but whatever. Um, but it, I this is the most time I've had to, like, research an episode. But I was so unwell that, like, I was falling asleep halfway through notes and like I had days where I was like, I can barely move or get out of bed and it's just not going well. And so the research took forever because I would do something in like a medicated state that I don't remember. So then I'd redo it and be like, oh, I've already done that. What am I doing? It, it's been just a comedy of errors nonstop. So I, until the last second, as far as, uh, research goes so that's been a treat but again like to your point it's just because it's been so long since illnesses have been in my life I forgot how much it was going to take me down but like my god this past what did we decide is it six months of my life I I've I've been I will preface this with saying everybody is fine In the last six months, I have been in the ER with each of my sons. Yeah, you've really had a go the last little bit. It's a lot. It just feels like the world is like, you know what? They're fair game now. They've had a cushy couple of years. Go for it. And the joke is all three were different things. All three uh, were not because of a parenting thing, all three were outside of my home. Uh, one at a football game uh, got tackled in a weird way and uh, sprained his ankle. Uh, and then I had a blissful five months where it was nobody was hurt, <laughs> nobody was sick, it was great. And then I got a phone call that my middle one fell on ice at school and banged his head so bad he cracked open his eyebrow. Ah. 
And the secretary just said, oh, yeah, he needs medical attention. (laughs) So I was like, all right, great. So I show up, take him to the ER. We're there for like three hours. I know they're doing their best. Didn't complain, just waited. It is what it is. Um, And then maybe a month, maybe a month went by. And my youngest, on his way home from school, our neighbor's dog got out. It's a very playful dog. My son isn't really used to dogs. So he runs. The dog thought it was a game. And the dog ended up biting his hand. <laughs> Jesus. Like, quite badly. Oh. So I was like, oh. And I'm like, oh, the bleeding kind of stopped. So maybe he doesn't have to go. And then I I Googled it. And no, regardless, you always have to take them to a hospital in case the dog might have, like, a tooth infection or something that could lead to whatever. And he had to have his, like the cut glued closed and like it was a whole thing everybody's fine the dog is fine i made sure nothing would happen to the dog because it's a very sweet dog otherwise but it's just like i i sauntered into that er (laughs) and they like i was the calmest parent they've probably ever seen where they were like what's the problem like oh god he's fine like there was no like please check my child i was just like it's fine we're good. And I was like, I'll just be over there. Okay, you call us when you need us. Like, I was like, it's so fine. And then we're like at the, I was like, you want to head over to the vending machine? I know they got Mike and Ike's. I saw it a month ago. <laughs> like <it's, laughs> I'm familiar with, yeah. with what they sell here. Yeah. And it was my moment sitting there being like, I was here a month ago. What's happening? And I'm like, but it's a different child. And both weren't on my watch. So it's not like, they're going to come down on me and be like, why are you always here with children? It's not, it's not me. It's boys have an energy. I can't, I can't. I did say at one point to you and I was like, I say this with love, but I, it is miraculous that you aren't in the hospital more with having three boys. I feel like that is that yeah. I, a lot of uh, parents of boys will and listen, any, any gender, any gender I'm not suggesting, but I just know that again, when you get a, when you get a pack of them, you know what I'm saying? Like it's, <laughs> They're like of wolves. Yeah. They're like wolves. And then they, yeah. they they rile each other up, you know. And again, I know that any gender of child can do that, but you know what I'm saying. It's there's oh, there's an energy. There's, there's an energy. There. there is a very specific energy to yeah. them. And I I think universe, I'm done now. <laughs> like I Yeah. They and that's the joke. I've never never really had to take them to a hospital. So that was a real journey. Uh to have all three like what are the odds of that in such a small amount of time and then i'm convinced it was someone from that waiting room that gave me what i currently have because that poor gentleman was very unwell and laying down and on the floor which wow i get i get he he was he was bad and so the as soon as i got really bad with this. I was like, oh shit, am I going to be back again at the hospital? But this time for me, like, thankfully, no, it's just been a lot of time laying in bed and then finally going, I guess I will see a doctor. But it's been, it's been a real journey and I'm ready for that journey to come to a close. I'm ready to move on. 
And I want that for you more than anything. More than anything. Um, Now, something else I know that all of us want is an update about a very famous case that we have covered on the show. That's, of course, Madeline McCann. And uh, it should be noted there was an update a few months ago. Um, because when, if you have not listened to that episode of the show, go back and give it a listen. Uh, because Christy at the time came for, and I came into that episode with preconceived notions, very firm preconceived notions. And she brought to me this new suspect, Christian B. Uh, and she said, dig under that house. There was a, we did a whole thing about it. And Christy's like, something's under that house. Well, spoiler alert. They looked under the house and guess what? (laughs) (laughs) He started to get eyed and they haven't said what the evidence is, but this a few months ago, they said, you know, we've searched, we're searching under the house, essentially exactly what she said. And spoiler alert, they were like, yeah, it's looking like this could be the way. Well, the latest update as of this week is he has been named an official Arguido, which is suspect. Yeah, correct. Um, Now, there is some some intrigue here, though, because there is a statute of limitations over there. Uh, in certain situations. So I, it's coming up fast is the point. But we don't know what evidence that they have. We do know, again, from uh, Christie's research into that case that uh, depending on which country they're going to try it in, they really have a mandate to ensure that they're going to get a guilty verdict. So they don't it's, – it's a little yeah. bit different. Court over here – you can kind of go a little bit faster and looser in terms of like, we can prove it over there. It's like, no, it has to be rock solid. Um, So the hope is, is that whatever they found, they're going to come forward with very imminently. And hopefully we can get some closure there because that's obviously a case that has, you know, gripped the true crime world for years. It's uh, 15 years, right? That we're coming up to. I think so. Cause I think it's the, I think 15 is their statute of limitations for that. But yeah, well, it's it's wild. It's wild that it's coming down to the wire. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And like I mean, us listen, in this episode. Uh, we, <laughs> it feels like there is some, some parallels <laughs> happening. Yes. Um, yeah, it does feel like it's coming down to the wire. I, I bet they do have some kind of mandate uh, with that because we do know that his cell phone pinged at, around the hotel at right. the time uh, Madeline went missing. Um, there's also, again, go back to the, I, I'm not going to recap the episode in full cause that could take a full 20 minutes to a half an hour right now, but go back and listen to our episode if you haven't. But basically, you know, there, th- this person has a history of really, um, recording, photographing, et cetera, his crimes. Mm. So that's always been my question is, is that something that's going to come out? Is that the evidence they've found? They've said that they've found quote evidence, but they won't say what it was, um, that's and the obviously, thing is that's, they won't tell us. I know, and that's horrific. If that is the kind of evidence we're talking about, obviously, no one wants to think about that at all. The only reason why there would be any sort of vested interest in that kind of horror is because it could obviously bring um, <coughs> justice for Madeline McCann and her family if that is the case. So, stay tuned. Stay tuned, True Crew. I think we're very close to perhaps uh, getting a. a potential break in that case which is wild and it does give hope too you know i think that that's one of those cases again 15 years on um it was it is one of the ones that i think has gripped a lot of people internationally around the world and it gives you hope that it's if if we can solve that one then maybe you know maybe there's more that can be solved later later on it makes it feel like um you know it's very hopeful which is yes. nice for something oh, that is yeah. so horrific and involves absolutely no hope 
it's nice to have a glimmer of hope that some some justice can be can be found. Oh, 100%. I also, I mean, I try to make myself feel better about how late we're recording this episode. And I'm like, you know what? This only came out like yesterday, I think. So we wouldn't be able to talk about it already in like the next episode if it wasn't for me pushing us back nearly a week. Again, this feels like a synchronicity. Maybe that was the universe being like, they need to wait so that they can give this update. uh, And she's just going to be miserable in the meantime. It doesn't feel worth it, to be honest. (laughs) I mean, if that's the plan, universe, we've done it. So clear them up. (laughs) They're ready to go. It's fine. I'm medicated. I'm so sorry. Now, I want to ask what you're drinking over there. My question is, is it some sort of like, you know, Samantha Jones's uh, uh, mother's um, uh, cold remedy, which was, I believe, like orange soda and a bottle of uh, cough syrup over ice (laughs) blended. I think that that was uh, that that feels that that feels right. Yeah. Uh, Well, I obviously chose not to do booze. Not that I have to. uh, I'm losing words. Not that I have to uh, explain myself for that anyway. You don't. But, you know, you want a drink, you have a drink. You don't yes. want a drink, you don't have to drink. No. Uh, I've got a water, obviously, for hydration. And then words I don't believe I've ever said before and may never say again. We'll see. Bit of apple juice. <laughs> hey! I was feeling a juice. It was literally the only one we had. I just ran with it. It is what it is. You know? Listen, I'm all for it. Now, listen, what's over here? Just the dregs of this morning Starbucks iced coffee, because, again, we are recording this very early in the day. Um, <laughs> and I don't even have a water. I guess I just said, screw it, hydration. Who needs you? You know, yesterday I got a – this is very quick. This is irrelevant. There's no point in bringing this up, but I'm going to say it. Maybe people will find this <laughs> relatable. I don't know. Um, yesterday I was like, why does my head hurt so bad? And it's like, because you haven't drank a glass of water in 18 hours. That's why. Because you're you're slamming coffees. Drink mm-hmm. some water. And you know, I drank some water throughout the rest of the day. And man, oh man, did I feel fine. <laughs> It's like, it's just basics. Lauren Ash, it's basics. Come on. It's amazing what water can do. Isn't it? It really yeah. is. Yeah. It's yeah, almost like that. it's, it's almost like our bodies are mostly made of it and it keeps us alive. Anyway. What a <laughs> dink I am. Oh, no, boy. No. Look, it's just sometimes water, to quote... My youngest, he doesn't say it anymore because he's older, but he used to say it when he was like three. It's boying. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, that's how I feel about a lot of men I've dated. Oh, and that's the thing. Boying. <laughs> that that uh, very sweet boy only ever used it as an insult. Like if he was ever mad at anybody for whatever reason – like a brother took a toy he was using or something, he would just look them dead in the eye and go, ya boying, and walk away. And I didn't know that, but that's, okay, this makes me feel again, because I feel like I really get him. As you know, yeah, like on my last do. visit, I was like, I get this. I get what this kid's about. I get his energy. I get yeah. him. And that's hilarious because that, to me, I have said many times, I don't know if I've ever said this on the show, but for me, the number one insult mm-hmm. I've, I would give somebody is exactly that. That's yeah. you're boring. You bore me. That's yeah. boring. Because uh, I do think that that to me, it's like I can't think of anything worse 
Like sure. if somebody told me I was boring, first of all, no one ever could. But if Nobody someone would. told me I was boring, I'd if be they like, did, oh be my God, I bore you? Oh, that's yeah. that's awful. But like your behavior yeah. is boring. I've said that. I've said that in earnest <laughs> in the past, for sure. Oh, yeah. There is no way this kid did not mean it every time he said it because it was always deadpan and just with like these dead eyes that were like, mm, over you. Yes. It was, it was always just ya boying. And so we've been using that for years because we find it so funny. Uh, He does not say that anymore because, you know, obviously kids grow up and change the way they say some things. I purposely don't correct them when they say words wrong. I know that's terrible, but you don't ever get over a kid telling you about an ascident. You know, those are the moments you're like, "Mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And you let it go. And you're like, you know what? A teacher's going to sort that out. But it's oh, not going to be me. Or over time, hearing hearing it, hearing other people say it. Yeah. You know, it may just eventually by osmosis change. True. Yeah, look, you're, you, got a real short, you got a real short window for those things. But what I like now is that I've, I've, this is, again, it's always amazing what you, you learn about the people that you know the most. Uh, yeah. Boying is going to go into my vocabulary. And I cannot wait to continue to use it uh, again in earnest. You boying. Yeah. You boy. Oh, it exactly. It was always it's just the it was the delivery that I have never had that level of sass from such a small person before. Yeah. Like I get that level of sass once they hit like eight, nine, which seems to be the new thirteen. Hooray for us all. Um, once they hit that, then you're like, here we go. But at, at like two and three, it's like <sighs> Again, I get him. I yeah. just get his vibe. I just do. I like he does a have a very specific vibe to it. He does. He, he does. does. Yeah. 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 I do remember once in earnest, I think it was like when I had discovered that uh, uh, one specific ex was cheating. You know, mm-hmm. the, I'm sure you know the one. Mm-hmm. And I think I literally just went, are you kidding me? How boring. <laughs> I was like, again, in the moment, I was just like, this is so boring. I was like, I can't believe this. Oh, now we're in this conversation? Like, oh, God, get out. Anyway, it's, uh, you know, this is it. Yeah. This is the stuff that happens when you record on a Saturday morning. Um, <laughs> not boying, if you ask me. Any yeah. little. Everywhere and nowhere, all at the same time. Because <laughs> you're everywhere to me. It's always there. Okay, like uh, listen, this episode, we're talking about Whitey Bulger, uh, which I could not be more excited about. Because I remember when Whitey came up in a previous episode of the show. Uh, yeah. And we got off that episode and you were like, I think I want to do an episode about Whitey. And I was like, great. And I mean, I'm always jazzed when you're jazzed. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, I was ready. But I was like, I don't know if I'm like ready because I knew that he was going to take some trips down some places. And look, I've been medicated for a week. I I don't know what's going on in this. (laughs) So... (laughs) Good luck to us all. <laughs> Look, I can't wait. It's going to be a wild ride, and dear listeners, you're going to take it with us. So here yeah. we go. I'll give you some backstory right now. 
Whitey Bulger was the notorious boss of the Winter Hill Gang, who was known for extortion, money laundering, and racketeering. He was described as the center of mayhem and murder in Boston for 30 years. And just when the police started to close in on him, Whitey left town and wasn't seen or heard from for 16 years. So how was Whitey able to run a gang for three decades without ever getting arrested? And how was he able to evade police while on the lam? And how was one of the most brutal and powerful underworld bosses in history brought down by a stray cat? Christy Oxborough investigates. Uh, Thank you for your use of on the lam. (laughs) Uh, I did use it uh, in the timeline on the other side because I couldn't stop myself. Um, There are times where I found I was using specific lingo that uh, maybe is best not meant for me, but it, it, it's, it, it brings a little cookies. So I assume cookies will come out at some point, but... Oh, uh, can't wait. God Cannot knows. wait. God knows. Oh, God. Well... And listen, if at any point you have to cough, just hit that mute button and I'll vamp. I'll just go. As soon as I see you're pausing and reaching forward, I'll just, I'll tap dance. People will love it. We'll be good to go. We'll be fine. Because we're going to get through this, right? We got apple juice. We'll be fine. Together, we're going to find our way. Silver spoons together. Good night. I, I, again, maybe Saturday mornings is just our vibe now. I've never felt like a morning person until today. It's going to become true crime and juice at this point. (laughs) Not David Schwimmer, but like, you know. Juice. Juice. Did did you see he was at an award show and someone, the, uh, they came up to him with a juice, juice. The video cracks me up every time and every time I mean to send it to you and I never think of doing it because my brain is everywhere. But here... A hundred percent. Thank you. Uh, So I am going to throw a lot of names at you. Weirdly enough, the majority of them are John for whatever reason. But I'm going to do my best to not be confusing. I apologize in advance. Most of these notes were done in a haze of illness. So I'm just really hoping that this is coherent. (laughs) That's all I'm going for. Uh, But since I was sick during most of this, We're all going to take the journey together. And isn't that going to be uh, the way? Instead of me leading everybody, we're all just on the same path today. Yeah. Uh, So as a disclaimer, today's episode is a bit different from what we normally do, as it doesn't focus on one specific case, but rather one specific criminal. So it's like a serial killer special. But instead of just murder, this particular criminal was one of the most vicious crime bosses in Boston history. So due to his activities, this episode will contain mentions of sexual assault, physical abuse, suicide, and graphic violence. So trigger warning for those who need it. I almost could not say the word trigger. My brain just kept going, Oh boy. Okay. (laughs) My brain is slower than what I'm saying, and that seems like a problem. But we'll get there when we get there. We will. So... 
James Joseph Bulger, Jr., was born September 3, 1929, in Boston, Massachusetts. His father, James Sr., was from Canada, or specifically Harbor Grace, Newfoundland. And his mother, Jane Veronica Jean McCarthy, was a first-generation Irish immigrant. James Sr. was a longshoreman and a union, union laborer who lost his left arm after it was crushed between two boxcars at the rail yard. Because of his severe injury, the Bulger family qualified for public housing. So in May 1938, the Bulgers moved into the Old Harbor Housing Project in South Boston. The project consisted of more than a thousand apartments in 22 three-story buildings and 152 row houses that was situated on 27 acres. Construction was said to be about $6 million, which is equivalent to $124 million in 2022. Old Harbor was the first housing project to be built in Massachusetts, while Techwood Homes in Atlanta, Georgia was the first federal housing project in all of the United States. Techwood was built in 1935. Uh, in 1961, City Council renamed Old Harbor to honor Mary Ellen McCormick, the mother of Congressman John McCormick, who championed for housing and human rights. Now, I have seen conflicting reports as to how many children the Bulgers had. I watched multiple documentaries and read multiple books on this, and they conflicted, which is frustrating at best. But from what I can tell, the Bulgers had three sons and three daughters. However, very little is ever, ever said about the daughters, but the sons all will play a, some of them smaller role than others in our story. For now, I'll say the oldest son, James Jr., who I mentioned, was born in 1929 and had blonde hair that was so light that people called him Whitey, a name he would never grow to like, so you never said it to his face. He was Jim, he was Jimmy. Behind his back, Whitey, but he better not find out you was calling him Whitey. You know? Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. Uh, the next was William Bulger, known as Billy. He was born in February 1934. He later attended law school and would go on to spend 18 years as president of the Massachusetts Senate, then president of the University of Massachusetts. The youngest Bulger brother was John Bulger, known as Jackie, born in 1938, Jackie would go on to be a clerk magistrate for the Boston Juvenile Court. Five of the Bulger children did very well in school. Whitey, however, struggled. It was said Whitey's father was physically abusive, which made Whitey run away from home and join Barnum and Bailey's circus as a roustabout. Legitimately Barnum and Bailey, not just I'm going to run off to the circus like the legit... Barnum and Bailey, which makes me want to go into Greatest Showman lyrics, but now is absolutely not the time. Yeah. Uh, Whitey came home scrappier, always looking for a fight. He got in with a gang of Southie youths called the Shamrocks, which was just the beginning of Whitey's Irish gang affiliation, which would last the rest of his life. Whitey's first arrest came at just 13 for larceny. At 16, Whitey got into tailgating, which is essentially stealing stuff from the back of trucks and then selling it. He claims he was beaten by police during an interrogation in his teens. At 18, Whitey was charged with assault with intent to rape. And if that isn't upsetting enough, 
Whitey pleaded guilty to a reduced charge of assault and battery and was fined $50, which is equivalent to about $644 in 2022. Did no time of any kind, just paid his small fine and moved on. Whitey's family begged him to leave the Saudi area, so he enlisted in the United States Air Force and was stationed in Montana. While enlisted, Whitey earned his high school diploma and learned how to fix airplanes. He got arrested in 1950 for going AWOL, and in 1952, Whitey was given a dishonorable discharge, despite the fact that he was facing a second rape charge at the time. To make matters worse, not only did he not do jail time for it, this time he didn't even have to pay a fine. Oh, boy. Whitey returned to the Boston area and got into petty thefts that escalated to bank robberies. Whitey claims during this time he robbed 17 banks. There is no way to tell how accurate that is. In May 1955, Whitey worked with a crew to rob a bank in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, which netted them $42,000, which is equivalent to about half a million in 2022. In October that same year, Whitey worked with a crew to rob a bank in the North Boston suburb of Melrose. Then in November, they robbed a bank in Hammond, Indiana, and made off with just over $12,000, which is about $150,000 in today's money. Shortly after the Hammond robbery, Whitey's partner got pinched and squealed to the coppers. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> this, <coughs> this, is, uh, this is how it's going to be, folks. I'm She's shocked gonna... it's taken this long, to be honest. <laughs> I, know. I know. It's been a whole page and a half. Where the hell you been, cook? <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> the cookie's nickname gets shortened to Cook. You referring to yourself in the third person, <laughs> shortening the, I mean, it's its so perfection. It's chef's kiss. It's amazing. I, look, the mob does things to me when I get talking about them, and uh, I just, I'm convinced by the end of this, I'm going to end up with a full Boston accent, and I, for everyone, I, for everyone's sake, I hope not. Uh, I look forward to it. I, I mean, I would love to have a Boston accent because I am so charmed by it, but I just wouldn't ever do it justice. Uh, so Whitey, uh, at the time, his partner squeals to the cops. Whitey gets his girlfriend at the time. I don't know her name. I know she was blonde because he has a preference, because I'll tell you, that comes up time and time again. Uh, they drove to Reno, San Francisco, Salt Lake City, and Chicago, which is something that Whitey would do later in life with two other blondes. But we'll get into that later on. In March 1956, Whitey returned to Boston, which was dangerous since there was still a warrant out for his arrest. But he thought he'd get around it by dyeing his hair black, wearing thick horned-rimmed glasses, and walking around with an unlit cigar in his mouth. <laughs> Somehow that super clever disguise wasn't enough to keep the feds off his trek, so when they received a tip that Whitey was at a bar in Revere, he was arrested in the parking lot. Whitey confessed to the robbery so that his girlfriend wouldn't be charged as an accomplice for ditching town with him. He was sentenced to 20 years, although he would serve less than half of that. Whitey was sent to a maximum security facility in Atlanta, Georgia. He was told if he was willing to volunteer in a special government project, he'd get time shaved off his sentence. The project... MK Ultra, 
which our OG listeners may recall from episode five, Berkshire's UFO. Whoa, that's crazy. I know. And that's just one of so many synchronicities from past episodes. Uh, Don't worry if you miss them all. I'm going to mention them specifically at the very end, because that's who I am. So, uh, the doctors claimed they were trying to find a cure for schizophrenia, but in reality, they were looking to create a mind control drug for the CIA. Whitey and the other volunteers received daily injections of LSD for 18 months. Whoa! Whitey claimed to suffer from intense headaches and persistent insomnia that stayed with him for the rest of his life. I bet it did. In the 1980s, Whitey told some associates that he'd use his involvement in the program as a defense if he ever got caught again. Whitey also claimed later in life he believed that it was these experiments that made him as violent as he was. But prior to these experiments happening, Whitey admitted that in his early teens, he would often beat up random kids just for fun. So a violent streak was definitely present prior to these experiments. Is it possible the experiments exacerbated his violent tendencies? Sure. But that is not where his violence started. We also know he had two sex assault charges. Yep. And if there was two charges, there... I think it's fair to say there was probably more incidents, so. Oh, I'm sure there was. Yeah. Uh, after spending uh, a lot of time in solitary for fighting, Whitey was caught plotting to escape and was sent to Alcatraz in 1959. After a few years, he was transferred to a facility in Leavenworth, Kansas. Whitey was officially arrested in Mar- or officially released, rather, in March 1965 after serving nine years. He was determined to never go to prison again. One of the conditions of his parole was that he get a legitimate job. So his brother Billy set him up as a custodian at Suffolk County Courthouse. After a while, Whitey just stopped showing up, although somehow he did continue to receive a paycheck. I don't know how long he continued to get paid without showing up. During his time in prison, there was a war raging on between the two largest Irish gangs, the McLaughlins and the McLeans. The war left 56 dead in just three years. Now, since most of us have never personally experienced gang life in Southie, here is just one example of that sort of lifestyle. April 1969, Peter Nee, who served two tours in Vietnam with the Air Force and was not involved in organized crime in any way, was shot in the face by a man named Kevin Daly. And while it happened in broad daylight, the code of the neighborhood was no matter what, you do not go to the police. Right. One witness, however, did go to Pat Nee, the victim's older brother. Pat then stalked the shooter for months waited for the right moment before shooting him five times and kicking his teeth in. But much to Pat's surprise, Daly actually survived the attack and identified Pat as his shooter. Pat was arrested for assault with intent to kill. Two months later, Daly's attorney read a statement in court saying, quote, My client now believes the statement was made under duress in a delusionary state, and we would like to rescind the statement. The truth is he did not get a good look at whoever shot and assaulted him on the night in question. Daly then nodded to Pat in the courtroom. Pat was released. Charges were dropped. And just like that, 
the two of them considered the matter closed. And that's apparently just how it works in Saudi. Right. Uh, by the time Whitey was released from prison, the main Irish gangs were the Killeens and the Mullins. Whitey got in with the Killeens, starting off as a loan shark and bookmaker before becoming the bodyguard for their leader, a South Boston bookie named Donald Killeen. The fighting went back and forth, which each each side would take out an important guy from the other, and it was just nonstop. Whitey started to realize he was on the losing side, and he blamed Donald Killeen, believing he was too soft for battle. So Whitey joined Howard Winter, who ran an Irish gang called the Winter Hill Gang. But Whitey knew Colleen would want some sort of revenge for deflecting, so Whitey decided to attack first. Donald received a phone call at home during his son's fourth birthday party that instructed Donald to go to a particular address. When he got inside his car, a man approached the vehicle with a machine gun and shot Donald 15 times. Oh my god! But Whitey wasn't satisfied to leave it at that and decided he wanted to take the entire Killeen gang down. So a few weeks after Donald's death, Whitey and three men approached a vehicle that had Donald's brother Kenneth inside. They shoved a gun in Kenneth's face and said, It's over. You're out of business. No other warnings. Kenneth got the message, and the Killeens stopped doing business and even offered Whitey control of their entire racket. Whitey absorbed the Killeens into the Winter Hill Gang and added a few more gangs to their numbers and went after the Mullins. Whitey took out six members of the Mullins in just two days, and by 1975, he'd taken out another six. The Mullins ended up agreeing to join Winter Hill, which became the main gang in Boston. In 1979, an indictment came down for fixing horse races, which took down more than 40 crime figures in the area including Howie Winter. So Whitey stepped up to take charge. But also, why was Howie fixing races to begin with? Because he was low on money, and he had to get a loan from a mob guy, and Howie was struggling to pay it back. How was a crime boss so low on money? Because Whitey moved in on Howie's rackets, and Howie was barely making any money, and yet somehow he let Whitey come in and just take everything over. I get the impression no one said no to Whitey, and if Whitey wanted something, everyone just stepped aside and let him have it. I just can't believe someone who was like the crime boss would let someone below him go, oh, no, no, I get that money, and they go, okay. And I think it's just because he was terrifying. Right. And so I get it. Uh, so by this point, Whitey was running the Winter Hill Gang with Steve Flemmy as his number two. The pair met in the late 1960s and immediately became BFFs as they seemed to be like minds. They were both described as capable, which apparently is gang speak for willing and able to kill if necessary. Okay. Uh, Flemmy had not mafia connections, which was a good source of work and revenue for Winter Hill. And Whitey was highly intelligent with major leadership skills who knew how to get the job done. So Whitey and Flemmy were a perfect partnership. Flemmy got the nickname The Rifleman after his time as a paratrooper during the Korean War, which was the setting for the TV series MASH, not the Vietnam War, as some may believe. That's a callback to our Bob <laughs> Crane episode. Yep. 
That was on me. That was on me. I misspoke. I agreed with you. I just thought it didn't make sense. The show went on for like 10 seasons. The Korean War was only like three years. It just didn't make sense to me. Not the point. We've corrected it before. Just pointing it out again. Uh, I like it. I like to laugh at our guffaws. Guffaws? Gaffs. Gaffs. There we go. At our gaffs. I guffawed at our gaff. Is that? There it is. Yep. That's it. Oh, I don't know what's going on with Cook over here. Jesus. So... Winter Hill controlled most of South Boston, including the docks. If anyone wanted to bring anything onto or off the docks, they had to pay Winter Hill a toll. And any business that operated in the area owed Winter Hill one quarter of their profits. Winter Hill was also known as killers, so if the mafia wanted someone taken out, they'd just subcontract the hit to Winter Hill. Especially to hitman John Martirano, who we will get to later on. So another major part of the Winter Hill uh, gang was Kevin Weeks, who started off as a semi-professional boxer and ended up as a bouncer at Triple O's, which was a bar owned by Whitey Bulger. One night, Whitey watched Kevin in action, taking on three men who Kevin had denied entry to the bar. Whitey liked what he saw and had Kevin move up to do Whitey's bidding. It started small with gambling and attacking those that Whitey asked, quickly moved up to loan sharking and extortion. Kevin later became involved in multiple homicides, to which Kevin said, quote, If I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right and be the best I can. Jeez. Which is horrifying when you realize someone's speaking about murder, but we'll get into Kevin Weeks' murder victims later in our story. And you know that Winter Hill had to have some guys on the inside, like FBI agent John Connolly. Connolly grew up in the same old harbor housing project that the Bulgers were. He looked up to Whitey. Connolly was an English teacher who joined the FBI in 1968 on the advice of Billy Bulger. Billy helped Connolly secure a letter of recommendation from Speaker of the House John McCormick, who would later write letters to prison authorities on Whitey's behalf. Interesting. I don't know how great those letters did. Right. Uh, so Connolly wasn't outright a member of Winter Hill, but he was a legit FBI agent. However, he took money from Whitey in exchange for information, so he wasn't exactly the best FBI agent. It was said the FBI had blinders on when it came to the Italian mob, to the point where they would let Whitey get away with pretty much everything, as long as it somehow helped take down the Italians. Back when J. Edgar Hoover was director of the FBI, he claimed there was no mob or mafia in the United States at all. Then in 1965, Attorney General Robert Kennedy, who you may recall from our Marilyn Monroe episode, arranged to have witnesses testify to the fact that there were a five-mafia family hierarchy in New York. Hoover was embarrassed as he had denied their existence for years, so he tried to make up for it by creating the Top Echelon Program. The program gave power to members of the FBI to use mafia and gang members as their informants. To quote John Connolly about informants, quote, You may get friendly with them, and you may like them, but you can't forget who they work for. J. Edgar Hoover himself authorized Steve Flemmie as an informant with the code name Jack from Boston. He tried multiple times to make Whitey an informant, but never got information from him, 
John Connolly was Fleming's handler. In 1979, Fleming gave the FBI the schematics to 98 Prince Street, the headquarters of the Italian Mafia in New York. FBI were able to get a recording device put in place. It remained there for 105 days. Finally, Jerry Angelo, the leader of the group, openly admitted to running drugs, sex work, ordering murders, and that officially took down the Angelo family. Since Fleming helped bring down the Italian mafia, it meant he could do pretty much anything. One of his phone calls was recorded in which Fleming admitted all he wanted to do was kill people because it felt better than hitting banks. His quote is, if you're going to kill people, be the best in the area. Again, they got the right spirit for if you're going to do it, be the best. But all of them want to be the best at killing. It's yeah, misplaced. It's, it's, it's yeah, let's take that energy and use it elsewhere. Yeah. Use it for good. Uh, now, the FBI heard the call in which Fleming said, I would rather murder than rob banks. And the FBI put out a memo within themselves that said, quote, Fleming is going to continue to commit murder, but informant's potential outweighs the risk involved. Oh, wow. In 1983, the state police tried several times to place electronic recording devices in and around Whitey Bulger, but every time they did, within hours, the bugs were found. So the state police just decided to give up. Stop going after him. It was hard. Yeah, I guess so. <coughs> By 1990, Whitey had been a criminal figure for 25 years and had not spent a single day of that in jail. Multiple police forces have tried to start an investigation on Whitey, but none had ever been successful. Whitey was highly intelligent. During his time in prison in the early 60s, he read a lot of books on military strategy. He always planned ahead, never lost his focus, and he made sure to never leave behind any incriminating paperwork. He only talked on payphones. Even then, he said very little. His meetings were usually outside and never in a vehicle. Whenever the Boston police or state police would try and get together or some sort of indictment on Whitey and his crew, the FBI would say, quote, we don't do South Boston, a.k.a. they don't mess with Whitey's territory. Because, of course, they don't want to mess with their informants. Whitey said he had contacts in the Massachusetts State Police, the Boston Police Department, the FBI, and the ATF, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. He said, quote, I took care of everybody, meaning he always had cash on hand, ready for bribes. Kevin Weeks said, quote, everyone can be corrupted. Whitey later claimed that he wasn't an informant, but rather he paid John Connolly hundreds of thousands of dollars for information on his rivals and like heads up on indictments or surveillance or wiretaps. Whitey also paid off John Morris, another FBI agent, who later admitted in court to taking thousands in cash and gifts from Whitey in exchange for the FBI looking the other way at some of Whitey's practices. Wow. But then things started to turn for Whitey. On December 23, 1994, Whitey took his girlfriend, Teresa Stanley, to Copley Plaza for some last-minute Christmas shopping at Neiman Marcus. A quick, 
Teresa Stanley's side note. Ooh. 37-year-old Whitey started dating 26-year-old Teresa Stanley in the fall of 1966. Recently divorced, Teresa was the single mother of four children between the ages of three months and seven years. Oh, wow. In 1976, Whitey bought a house on Silver Street in Saudi and moved Teresa and her four children, Karen, Joan, Nancy, and Billy, into the house. The children called Whitey Charlie for reasons I'll never know. (laughs) Whitey had his own apartment, but he would have dinner with Teresa and the kids almost every night. He also spent holidays with them. Whitey supported both Teresa and her children, despite the fact that the couple never married. Teresa later testified in court that she was unaware of Whitey's alleged criminal activities, and he told her he worked in construction. If Teresa ever asked him a question, Whitey would tell her to mind her own business. Mm. Fun fact, in the early 90s, while on vacation, Whitey and Teresa visited Alcatraz, where they had souvenir photos taken. No way. It blows my mind that a former Alcatraz inmate would ever go back after the prison closed and then get their picture taken dressed as a prisoner. The photo is just unreal because he's doing this, like, fake smile. He's clearly doing it for her, but... I will, of course, post it Facebook and Instagram at True Crime and Cocktails, Twitter at Knock Detectives. Now, before I get too far from this topic, I would be remiss if I didn't mention another woman that Whitey met in 1966, the same year that Whitey started dating Teresa. He met 21-year-old Lindsay Sear. Just a reminder that Whitey was 37 at the time. No judgment, just stating facts. On May 22, 1967, Lindsay gave birth to Whitey's son, Douglas Glenn Sear. It was kept a secret, as Whitey feared that his son would become a target if any of his rivals learned about him. Sadly, Douglas would become ill in the fall of 1973, and based on doctor's advice, Lindsay gave Douglas aspirin, which was very common at the time. Unfortunately, Douglas ended up having a severe allergic reaction to the medicine, which is known as Reyes syndrome. According to the Mayo Clinic, Reyes syndrome usually affects kids between 4 and 14 years old who are recovering from a viral infection. It is rare, but it causes swelling in the brain and liver. Death usually occurs in 20 to 40 percent of those affected. And sadly, Douglas did die October 8th, 1973, at just the age of six. Mm. It was said that the loss of his son completely destroyed Whitey. Lindsay said she remained in a relationship with Whitey until 1979, but the death of their son was too much, and they broke up. After Whitey's trial, Teresa said that was the first time she had ever learned that Whitey ever had a son. So Whitey and Teresa are going shopping in December 1994. Whitey gets paged by Kevin Weeks. Kids, if you don't know what being paged is, we'll have to talk about that at another time. Yeah. I'm sure there's a YouTube about it. (laughs) A YouTube. Come on, Nana. Basically, it's a text (laughs) that comes to a device that can only read the text. That's it. You can't send a text from it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Very popular with the... Doctors and drug dealers in the 90s. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's what it is. Ah, so 
Whitey gets a page by uh, Kevin Weeks. So Whitey and Teresa drive to South Boston Liquor Mart, which was basically their headquarters. They pick up Kevin Weeks, who worked at the Liquor Mart as a cashier during the day. Not so fun fact about the Liquor Mart. Uh, according to Kevin Weeks' later testimony, in 1984, Whitey and Flemmy held the Liquor Mart's original owners at gunpoint to force them to sell the Liquor Mart to them. Wow. So Whitey and Teresa pick up Kevin Weeks and they drive to Copley Plaza, where Whitey gives Teresa some cash and tells her, go on ahead. While she's gone, Weeks informs Whitey that he has news from John Connolly, who had since retired from the FBI in 1990 and was working as a security chief at Boston Edison ever since. Connolly uh, told Weeks the FBI was planning to arrest Whitey and Flemmy for extortion and racketeering for uh, shakedowns on a couple of local bookies. Whitey signals to Teresa to come back to the car. They drop Weeks off at the Liquor Mart around 4.30 p.m. They call Flemmy to warn him about the indictment, and then Whitey and Teresa hit the road, and like that, Whitey was gone. Without realizing the bad guy uh, had been tipped off, the state police, Boston police, and FBI were planning to drop indictments on Whitey, Steve Flemmy, and another mob boss named Frank Salemi. The plan was to grab all three at the same time, knowing each would run if they heard about the other's arrest. So the plan was one agency grabs Salemi, one grabs Flemmy, and the FBI specifically requested to be the ones to grab Whitey. I wonder why. Mm. Both Salemi and Flemmy, which I love that their names rhyme, <laughs> uh, got away. So the police go and check on the FBI, who were like, oh, shoot. We can't find Whitey. When asked, how is it possible you told us you had him? The feds were like, oh, yeah. Well, it turns out they were actually surveilling the wrong house. They were four doors down from the house they were supposed to be watching. So they missed it. Darn. I don't know how oh, that ever boy. happened. Yeah. Police went to the door to confirm, and sure enough, it was not Teresa Stanley's house like they had originally thought, so police went to the actual house, but Teresa was gone. They hustled across town to another house owned by another one of Whitey's girlfriends. The woman stopped them at the door, asked if they had a search warrant. When they said no, she told them to go fuck themselves. <laughs> he had a very specific type of lady that he liked. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, the police spent the next 48 hours checking and any and every Whitey sighting in the Boston area, but came up empty-handed. But they weren't so quick to let go of the idea of Whitey, so they tried a classic scheme to reel the fugitive in. In the summer of 1991, a man named Michael Linsky purchased a lottery ticket at the South Boston Liquor Mart. Michael was the brother of one of Whitey's underlings. So Michael's ticket ends up winning $14.3 million, which is equivalent to like $30 million now. But the ticket was purchased from Whitey's headquarters. And because it was purchased in Southie, which is Whitey's area, Whitey demanded that Michael sign the ticket over to him. Michael refused. Whitey ended up paying Michael $2.3 million and said that $2.3 gets me 50% of that ticket. Michael agreed. So the ticket got split four ways. 
Whitey and Kevin Weeks got half, and Michael and his brother got half. Each were getting about like $119,000 every year for like 20 years, which is probably the only legitimate income that Whitey ever earned. Right. In 1995, after Whitey skipped town, he still had $1.6 million left to claim. So Whitey was sent a summons to appear in court in the next 60 days, or he would forfeit his remaining lottery payouts. One of Whitey's sisters came forward and tried to claim the winnings, but was denied. And because Whitey was too smart to fall for such an obvious scheme, he never showed up. Mm. So at this point, the Massachusetts State Police, the Boston Police Department, and the FBI are working to find Whitey. Or at least, the FBI is pretending to help. When Whitey first went on the run, the FBI insisted on being in charge of the manhunt. So they assigned the case to their organized crime squad, which was a squad that Whitey had control over for decades prior to disappearing. Then it took that squad over two years to put a task force together to find Whitey. And it took the FBI almost five years before they put Whitey on their most wanted list. The state police suggested maybe they get a video made about Whitey that they could share with other law enforcement agencies in an attempt to get Whitey's face out there to decrease his hiding options. When the idea was run past Washington bigwigs, they said no as, quote, it could prove embarrassing for the Bureau. A.K.A. no one wanted to publicly admit that Whitey might have been working with the FBI. Of course. The police changed strategies and started to focus on getting evidence on Whitey by going after his main cohorts, namely Kevin Weeks, hitman John Martirano, and Whitey's right-hand man, Steve Fleming. So Kevin Weeks was convicted on racketeering and narcotics trafficking in 1999. In 2000, Kevin led investigators to various burial sites in Dorchester, where three bodies had been buried. Months later, he led police to Tinian Tenian Beach, and two weeks later, to another two bodies at the Neponset River. Kevin was sentenced to five years and was released in 2005. Steve Flemmy was arrested January 5th, 1995, in the parking lot of Schooners, a restaurant in the Boston's financial district that was owned by Flemmy's son. He was sentenced to life in prison in 2004. In early 1995, the FBI got a tip that John, John Martirano, a hitman for the Winter Hill Gang and close friend of Whitey Bulger, was living in Boca Raton, Florida, under the name Vincent Rancourt. Martirano was picked up January 9th. He was facing an old indictment from 1979, the same one that took Howie Winter down. Martirano had been living on the lam ever since under various aliases. It's amazing he was able to do that for like almost 20 years. Yeah. That indictment alone would have meant a 20-year sentence. But Martirano was a huge piece of the Whitey puzzle as he had not as he not only openly admitted to murders on Whitey's behalf, he was a close friend of both Whitey and Steve Flemmy, so close that Whitey and Flemmy were godfathers to Martirano's son, and Martirano's youngest son was named after Whitey. The FBI made a big announcement that Martirano had been caught, despite the fact that they weren't even involved in his capture. 
Then they announced that they were creating a high-level task force to create or to capture Whitey. In 1997, John Martirano agreed to a plea deal that if he agreed to testify against Whitey, Steve Flemmy, and John Connolly at future trials, that Martirano would get immunity from any and all crimes that his testimony may reveal that he committed. At wow! The, <laughs> at the time, the prosecution believed Martirano was involved with 10 murders. They signed the plea deal. Then he admitted it was more like 20. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, it's done deal. Uh, Martirano was sentenced to 14 years, but was released in 2007 after just serving eight. Again, this man has admitted to murdering 20 people. Wow. Uh, after his release, Martirano received $20,000 from the government because it was part of his plea agreement. Then he received 55000 from a book deal, plus another 20000 in royalties. And if that wasn't enough, he sold his life story to a movie studio for $250,000. Which is all impressive for a hitman. Although Martirano doesn't like the particular term. He says a hitman kills for money. But he says he never took money for hits. He might have taken a gratuity for a job well done. But he never <laughs> took money for a kill. I know. This. Oh, so he's on a tip basis. Yeah. Okay, yeah. sure. Yeah, it's this guy's wild. Uh, and uh, despite admitting to killing 20 people, Martirano also doesn't consider himself to be a serial killer because he believes they enjoy killing, whereas he does not. His only reason for killing anybody was to take care of his family and to do what Whitey told him. Oh, okay. Yeah. Police also captured John Connolly, who worked as Whitey and Flemmy's handler at the FBI, and allegedly tipped them off about the indictments. He was arrested December 1999, and in 2002, Connolly was convicted of, an, of obstruction of justice and racketeering and sentenced to 10 years in federal prison. Then in 2008, Connolly was convicted of secondary murder charges in Florida for one of Whitey's hits, which we will get into later. Connolly was sentenced to 40 years in state prison and was transferred to Florida State Prison. In February 2021, Connolly was granted a medical release when it was found he had terminal cancer and his life expectancy was less than a year. As of April 2022, Connolly is still alive and living as a free man. Interesting. Connolly refused to testify against Whitey. John Martirano, Kevin Weeks, and Steve Flemmy all happily, happily testified against Whitey. John Connolly wouldn't budge. And since I'm talking about people from Whitey's life, I should also mention that Billy Bulger resigned from the Senate and took a job as the president of the University of Massachusetts, but was forced to resign after he refused to tell a congressional committee what he knew about Whitey's whereabouts in 1995. But don't worry, Billy still receives his $200,000 a year pension. Oh, boy. So where was Whitey when all of this was going on, all of these guys getting captured, all of this? Well, when he first left town with Teresa Stanley, they spent Christmas in Selden, New York, then moved down the East Coast before spending New Year's Eve in New Orleans at Le Richelieu Hotel, 
But when a Boston tourist named Amy Silberman was killed by a stray bullet in New Orleans, a lot of police and Boston media were swarming the area, so Whitey knew the area was no longer safe. Amy, Amy Silberman, side note. Amy was, friend, was with friends in the French Quarter's Jackson Square when around 11.40 p.m. there was a popping sound, like fireworks or gunfire. Amy fell to the ground and was taken to the hospital, where it was found she had been shot in the top of the head. She was just 31 years old. Mm. Police believe the shot was a stray bullet from someone firing the gun into the air in celebration of the New Year, which is a popular custom in New Orleans. Police told Amy's family that many people have been injured from such gunfire over the years, but that Amy was the first fatality. And to that I say, if many people have been injured before, why not make it illegal? Feels just a yeah. thought. Yep. Amy was an executive assistant for a magazine publisher, and she loved to write. Amy was described as, quote, incredibly warm and upbeat. She had a quality which made everyone confide in her. It is always tough when someone so young is taken, especially when it is completely senseless. So Whitey and Catherine headed to Clearwater, Florida, where Whitey got some cash and a new identity that he had stowed in a safe deposit box. A few days later, he still hadn't heard anything about an arrest from these indictments. So he started thinking, well, then it must be safe to go back to Boston. But on their way, while in Connecticut, news on the radio came that Steve Flemmy had been arrested. So Whitey kind of diverted them and they went to New York. They spent time in Los Angeles and San Francisco. But by early February 1995, Teresa started to get homesick. And she missed her kids and her grandkids. So Whitey agreed to take her home. Whitey contacted Kevin Weeks and made arrangements to meet up with him at Malibu Beach in Dorchester. Whitey dropped Teresa Stanley off at a Chili's parking lot in Hingham, Massachusetts, hey. with the plan that one of her daughters would pick her up. Whitey told Teresa he'd call her, but he never did. I just can't believe they were together for like 30 years. And in the end, he says adios in a Chili's. <laughs> That does feel like a real fall from grace. Right? And then like yeah. a, see you again, kid. And then you s just don't. And then he never spoke to her again. Uh, after the very anticlimactic goodbye with his girlfriend of nearly 30 years, Whitey then drove to meet up with Kevin Weeks in Dorchester, because Kevin had run a small errand beforehand and picked up Whitey's girlfriend of 20 years, Catherine Gregg. Of course. That's right. Whitey was dating multiple women at once. Are we surprised? I don't think we are. And apparently, while Catherine knew all about Teresa, Teresa had no idea about Catherine. That is, until mid-1994, when Catherine con contacted Teresa, had Teresa come over to her house, and then Whitey came home, because, you know, he was spending half his time living with Catherine, uh, and had been for decades. Of course. Whitey met Catherine through mutual friends in the early 70s. In 1971, at the age of 20, Catherine married firefighter Bobby McGonigal, but the couple divorced after Bobby had an affair. During their divorce, Catherine started dating Whitey in 1975. 
a year before Whitey bought uh, a house to move Teresa and her kids in. Um, when Catherine and Whitey started dating, Whitey was 46. Catherine was 24. Okay. Her first husband, Bobby, later died from a drug overdose in 1987. Whitey eventually moved in with Catherine, who was a former dental hygienist, and Whitey would split his time between living with Catherine and living with Teresa. When police first went looking for Whitey, after checking Teresa's house, the next house on the list was Catherine's. She is the one that told them to go fuck themselves. Um, Because it turns out everybody, even the cops, knew about Catherine, but Teresa did not. Oh, that's a slap in the it's face. A, it's pretty bad. It is almost as bad as being dropped off at a Chili's, but, you know. Yeah. Good God. Uh, Teresa had no idea about Whitey's relationship with Catherine until 1994. And, of course, when she found out, it caused a massive fight between Whitey and Teresa. So he tried to make it up to her with a romantic vacation, and he promised to never see Catherine again. Whitey and Teresa traveled from Boston to Dublin, Ireland, on October 3rd, 1994, then to London, England, where Whitey allegedly beat a man on the tube for calling him a bloody yank. (laughs) Yeah. How romantic. From London, they flew to Venice, Italy on October 20th, and then from Venice back to Boston, October 28th. And while the trip may have eased some of Teresa's concerns about Whitey's secret girlfriend, spoiler alert, he never stopped seeing Catherine. And not only that, later it would come to find out that Whitey actually used that trip to hide money and fake IDs in safe deposit boxes in Europe. Of course. So after being on the lam for like five, six weeks, Teresa decides she wants to go home. At this point, she's 54. She's settled in her life. She wants to be around her kids. Catherine, on the other hand, is about 43, and her only ties to Boston were her two toy poodles, Nikki and Gigi, and her twin sister, Margaret McCuster, McCuster, McCusker, geez, uh, with whom Catherine had a very complicated relationship, we'll say. And just for reference, Whitey was 65 when he made a run for it. And while he could have gone alone, he had a heart condition, and I think he realized he would eventually need someone to care for him. Plus, I don't think Whitey Bulger ever liked to actually be alone. That probably means he genuinely didn't like himself, but that's a whole other psychologist hat thing. Of course. Months after returning home, Teresa cooperated with the police and told them about Whitey's hideout in New York, the make and color of the vehicle he was driving, as well as the fact that he was driving under the alias... Thomas Baxter. But the FBI did nothing with that information and chose not to share it with other agencies. Cut to September 1995 in Long Beach, Mississippi, a police officer pulls up behind a car at a red light. The light turns green, but the car doesn't move. The cop notices the driver seems nervous and keeps looking in the rearview mirror. The cop checks the license plate, sees it's from New York, so he checks it on his computer and the plates come back registered to Thomas Baxter, but he has no criminal record. So the cop debates about pulling him over just because the guy's acting suspicious, but then he got called to an accident, so he just decides the guy has no record, I'll let him go. If the FBI had mentioned this alias to other agencies when they first found out, the name would have been flagged in the system, 
and Whitey would have potentially been caught nine months after he ran. But instead, Whitey remained on the run for 16 years. Ah, it's almost as though the FBI didn't want him to be caught. I can't. I can't. <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. What a fascinating story. And we're not even all the way through it yet. Uh, dear listeners, grab another drink, hit the can, and we're going to be right back after a quick break on this episode about Whitey Bulger on True Crime and Cocktails. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're talking about Whitey Bulger. Before the break, uh, Christy was talking about how the FBI maybe bungled, maybe deliberately didn't fully pursue mm. finding him when he was on the lam. Uh, but where are we going next on this wild journey? Well, s said very well, wild journey. We're going to talk about the wild journey. Oh. Um, that is where Whitey and Catherine actually went, as best we can tell. So police received tips that Whitey was in Montreal, Spain, oh. and Dublin. Those tips were never corroborated. From the best investigators can piece together now, years later, is in 1995, Whitey and Catherine spent time in Long Island, Clearwater, Florida, and Sheridan, Wyoming, before ending the year in Grand Isle, Louisiana. In 1996, they were in Okama, Oklahoma, before traveling from Chicago to New York on Amtrak as Mark and Carol Shapeton. Then it was back to Grand Isle, where their neighbors came to know them fairly well, to the point where Whitey and Catherine were like adoptive kind of grandparents to these people's children, who called Whitey Charlie, which psychologist hat makes you wonder if he did that because he genuinely missed Teresa's children since he practically raised them. But despite uh, what a violent monster Whitey was, he had a real soft spot for children. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of things about him that are like weird, but we'll get into that. Uh, in 1998, Catherine and Whitey were spotted in a convenience store in Sloan, Iowa, which is exactly how I would get caught if I was on the run. They'd simply put my picture in every 7-Eleven and McDonald's and I'd be caught immediately. In 2000, Catherine was spotted at a beauty salon in Fountain Valley, California, getting her hair done. Whitey was spotted waiting in a vehicle in the parking lot. 
And in 2002, they were seen throughout Florida in Jacksonville, Daytona Beach, and Kissimmee, and then they were briefly in London. Obviously, while on the run, they couldn't use their real names, so they had to make use of fake IDs. Before he went on the run, Whitey used to check old newspapers for babies who died in 1929, and he'd get a birth certificate with that name, go to the DMV, and get himself a driver's license. Unfortunately for him, it wasn't that easy when he was on the run, so Whitey and Catherine would pay people without housing to buy their ID from them. One person in particular, James William Lawler, had a striking resemblance to Whitey. So Whitey paid Lawler $1,000 for his license, birth certificate, and social security number. Whitey also put Lawler up in a motel and paid his rent for several years until Lawler's death in 2007. He said he wasn't, uh, it wasn't an act of kindness, it was an investment. Wow. Yep. There was even a time when Whitey needed new ID, and since his brother Jackie looked very similar to Whitey, Jackie put on a fake mustache, because Whitey had grown one at that point, had his picture taken and made into new ID, which was given to Whitey. Jackie Bulger was indicted in 2001 for perjury, for lying about having contact with Whitey while he was on the lam. Uh... And while Whitey and Catherine were on the run for over a decade, Catherine grew tired of the life and moving from one motel to the next. Uh, so she told Whitey it was time to settle down, which is kind of what led to the couple getting caught. But of no course. shade. No shade. Again, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to go multiple years without hitting a 7-Eleven. Are you kidding me? Hitting. You know what I mean. You know what I mean. The point is... I can, you can only go through a McDonald's drive-thru in a disguise so much before they're going to catch on that it's you. I would get caught immediately. I couldn't do it. Uh, in June 2011, the FBI shifted their focus from catching Whitey to catching Catherine Greek. The FBI put it together a public service announcement asking for the public's assistance in finding Catherine, who was wanted for harboring a fugitive. They bought 350 time slots during daytime TV that appealed to women during shows like Live with Regis and Kelly, The View, and Ellen. It was a 30-second spot that asked, have you seen this woman? The spot mentioned that Whitey was wanted in connection with nearly 20 murders and that he had a violent temper in the hopes that someone would see that spot and think, oh, I need to save her. Interesting. Again, absolutely appealing to the female demographic. And while they only paid to have the spot run in areas where they had previously gotten tips about sightings, it ended up being picked up by CNN and BBC and was spread internationally. Almost immediately, they received a solid tip that included names and an address. Within 48 hours, they got a tip that Whitey and Catherine might be in Santa Monica, California. Oh, wow. The tipster, known as Anna B., said that she had conversations with a woman who lived in her building while they were both tending to a stray cat. Anna said that the woman matched Catherine's description and that she lived with a man matching Whitey's description. Police went to the Princess Eugenia apartment building on 3rd Street in Santa Monica to do surveillance. They looked into the couple who were living in that apartment, 
and found it to be Charlie and Carol Gasco. They didn't appear to have much of a history uh, or a record of any kind, which was a good sign the IDs were fake. Neighbors said the rec- that Carol was very approachable, but that Charlie was quiet and more withdrawn. Many people said uh, that they spoke with Carol about a stray cat who Carol had named Tiger. When neighbors found out that Carol and Charlie were really Catherine and Whitey, they were shocked. One woman said Whitey often pet her bull terrier named Joey, to which the woman said of Joey, quote, I guess he's not a very good judge of character. <laughs> which is hilarious to me that this woman thought the dog should have picked up on the fact that Charlie was really a massive crime boss, even though the woman did not pick up on it herself. But the joke about Whitey Bulger is that he was a violent, terrifying man who allegedly killed a woman with his bare hands. And yet, it turns out he was just a big old softie for animals. To the point, he couldn't physically watch somebody fishing. Because to watch the fish struggle was too upsetting to him. That's fascinating. Right? It's the two vastly different um it's two vastly different people shoved into one person for me Mm -hmm. i'll get into that later but still it's wild so on june 22nd 2011 officers approached the princess eugenia apartments and surrounded whitey when he was in the garage he took them upstairs to his apartment number 303 where he showed them the weapons fake ids and cash that he had hidden in the walls throughout the apartment There were guns behind books on the bookshelf, 30 weapons, including guns and knives, hidden in the walls, a hand grenade, handcuffs, 15 fake IDs, and approximately $823,000 in cash. And when I say hidden in the walls, I mean they would literally take a picture down and there would be that exact shape cut out of the wall with all of the stuff shoved inside. Like everything, you take it down and there's the whole... Deep inside, there's all his guns and money. They're not getting their rental deposit back. (laughs) Good good luck renting that apartment out again. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh. Shout out to my husband, who, while we were recording this, and it slightly threw me off there for a moment, um, snuck in and put a Slurpee on the desk. That's nice. That's nice. That's nice. Thanks, babe. And I'll say it. He's a keeper. Yeah. Because I did go out at the break and was like, I don't know how much more of this apple juice I can go through. The burps are vile, <laughs> is what I said to, you know, my own husband, to which he just was like, understood. And apparently he went out or had someone do it for him. I don't know. I'll have to find out. That's nice. So Whitey Bulger was one of the most sought after fugitives in the world. In 1996, police were offering a $250,000 reward for information on Whitey. The reward increased to $1 million in 2000 and $2 million in 2008, which was the highest reward ever offered for a domestic fugitive. He was mentioned on America's Most Wanted 16 times, and he was on the FBI's Most Wanted list, second behind Osama bin Laden, who was killed May 2nd, 2011, Basically, the FBI had a really solid six weeks in 2011. I'll give them that. I'll give them that. So Catherine Grieg's lawyer claimed that Catherine's only crime 
was falling in love with Whitey Bulger. Oh, boy. But the judge didn't buy that, and Catherine was sentenced to eight years for aiding and abetting a fugitive and for identity fraud. For refusing to cooperate or testify against Whitey, 21 months was added to Catherine's sentence. Catherine was transferred from a women's federal prison in Minnesota to a halfway house in Cape Cod in the spring of 2019 as part of the government's First Step program. The program was created to give prisoners an opportunity for shortened sentences and job training. In September 2019, Catherine moved in with Billy Bulger's daughter Mary in Hingham, Massachusetts. Catherine's probation ended in July of 2020. And she's just quietly living her life now and right so be it she did her time that's that and while we're talking about whitey's former girlfriends Teresa stanley who whitey initially went on the run with in december 1994 passed away from lung cancer in august 2012 at the age of 71 she was described as quote a beautiful person both inside and out who carried herself with tremendous grace and dignity at times under some difficult and challenging circumstances. To which I will also say, she spent 30 years of her life living as a housewife, raising her children and being in this long-term relationship where he was the breadwinner and then he left town and she had nothing. And so at 54, she had to like get the first job she'd had in decades and make her life work on her own. And goddamn, she did. So Good for her. Good for her. I can't imagine. I also can't imagine suddenly learning the man you've been with for 30 years has been with someone else for 20 years. I hope to God. Oh, well, no, she would have found out. I was going to say, I hope to God she never found out about the girl he was dating before Catherine, who he also <laughs> dated overlapped while he was with Teresa. So she if was I never may. his only girlfriend. If I may. Yeah. That, that's boying. <laughs> Whitey, ya boy. Ya boying. Honestly, only, though, yeah. Uh, the, the idea of, of, I mean, that's, oh, look, we can't get she, into this now, but I'm like, that's, a, that's, that's something that I feel like would happen to me. It's like, oh, you finally <coughs> found love. Oh, good for you. 30 years in. It's like, for 20 of these, thir- are you kidding me? Like, good Lord. Yeah. And that's the yeah. thing. 20 of them was with one woman. The 12 before that, like the first 10, he was with somebody else. I mean. So the idea of, I was with you for 30 years and I was never once your only girlfriend. That's. That, oh, ya boying. Ya boying. But good honor for rallying and turning her life around and doing her thing. Right. Well done, Teresa. Yeah. And I, I get it. I wouldn't, I don't think I'd be able to just drop everything and leave. And, like, decades later come back. Like, that couldn't be my thing. So kudos to her for being like, I need to go back. Absolutely. So Whitey makes his first court appearance. The city of Boston was on edge. Not only had there been years of anticipation leading up to this moment, but the city was still reeling from the Boston Marathon bombing, which happened just two months prior to Whitey coming back. At his first court appearance, Whitey was asked if he could afford a lawyer. Whitey said, quote, I would be if you'd give me back my money. Because, of course, that 820-some thousand dollars was confiscated. So, uh, right. Whitey had to get a uh, lawyer appointed by the court. 
Fun fact, during Whitey's time in prison, not many visitors were allowed, but Whitey put in a request for one specific person to visit. Would you like to take a guess on who that person is? Because I guarantee you'll never guess, but I'd love for you to try. I do want to guess. I love these games. Yes. But I, one will give, person... I will give you a clue. It's a man. Okay. The only person Whitey said could visit him in prison. The only okay. person Whitey specifically requested to visit. <laughs> Billy Joel. <laughs> Solid. Solid answer. <laughs> but I'm so sorry. That is incorrect. The correct answer is Mark Wahlberg. I was close. I was like, I bet you it's, I was, cl- I knew it. I knew mm-hmm. it was going to be someone like that. I assume, and this is because you never know. I just assume Whitey was hoping a movie would get made about him. And he was hoping to be portrayed by someone from Boston. Either that or Whitey was just a huge fan of the Funky Bunch. I can't decide. <laughs> of course, a movie, movies would get made about Whitey. At this point in time, you know, not until way later on. Yeah. Point is, uh, Whitey's trial began in June 2013. He was being tried on 32 counts of racketeering, extortion, money laundering, weapons charges, and complicity in 19 murders. Since Whitey admitted to racketeering, loan sharking, illegal gambling, drug trafficking, and gun possession— the defense decided to push the informant angle, saying not only was Whitey not an FBI informant, but Whitey had an agreement with former U.S. Attorney Jeremiah O'Sullivan that would give Whitey immunity for most of his crimes. Winter Hill Gang associate John Martirano, Steve Flemmy, and Kevin Weeks all gave testimony regarding Whitey as an informant, Kevin Weeks said, quote, Whitey was disciplined and lived and breathed the life of crime because we killed people that were rats and I had the two biggest rats right next to me. So at this point, then Whitey yells across the room, you suck, to which Kevin goes, fuck you, okay? And Whitey just responds, fuck you too. And then that was the last time they ever spoke. It's just the idea in this like major like crime boss underworld sort of court we have going on to hear a gu- an old man yell, you suck. It's just, there was something about it that really made me laugh. I've been unwell. Oh, I love it. So while Whitey admitted to so many of his crimes, he outright denied ever having anything to do with a single murder. The co-prosecutor Brian Kelly's opening statement lasted 90 minutes during which he read the name of all 19 victims whose deaths Whitey allegedly was involved in. Kelly also showed a photo of each victim to the jury on a monitor. Now, here is where we need to take a step back in time to the deaths of each of these people, as I've hit on some of them throughout earlier in the episode. Now, there are a lot of victims, so I'm going to try and keep this as succinct as possible, I also couldn't find as much information on some as others. I'm just... I'm doing my best. (laughs) You're doing great. Holding on by a thread. Uh, And just a warning, for the second time in this episode, I am going to throw a lot of names at you. Some of these are also going to get graphic. So, brace yourselves. 
Uh, when the Winter Hill Gang became the proverbial top dog, Whitey decided they needed to get rid of a rival gang leader named Al Notarangeli in March 1973. So he had men stake out the bar called Mother's, which Al owned, when they saw a man who matched his description leave the bar with a man and woman and get into a car that was similar to Al's. Whitey's men shot at the car in what they called a broadside, but it turns out they had the wrong man. The person they actually killed was 30-year-old bartender Michael Milano, who happened to have the same make of vehicle as his boss. Also in the car, Diane Sussman de Tenen and her boyfriend Louis Lapiana, who was a co-worker of Michael's. Diane had a gunshot wound to an arm, and Louis was left paralyzed from the chest down. Oh, God. He remained on a respirator until his own death in 2001. Mm. Later that same month, 49-year-old Albert Bud Plummer, a member of Al Notarangeli's gang, was gunned down in a drive-by in Boston's North End. It is believed that Whitey's men were responsible in another attempt of taking Notarangeli's gang down. Also in March 1973, 32-year-old William O'Brien, a former accomplice of Whitey's, from his bank robbing days, was shot and killed while driving on Morrissey Boulevard in South, Bo South Boston. At the time, William's girlfriend was nine months pregnant. She gave birth four days after William's death. Oof. In December 1973, 43-year-old James Spike O'Toole was shot and killed for being a rival of Steve Flemmy. First, he was shot with a carbine, which is a short-barreled firearm, originally used by the cavalry. Then he was shot with a machine gun, and then he was shot directly in the head. Which, if he's a rival of Flemmy, sounds more like maybe it's Flemmy, and also overkill Flemmy? But again, what do I know? Uh, after several failed attempts at killing rival gang leader Al Notarangeli, Whitey's crew officially were successful in February 1974 when Al was shot in the back of the head. During Whitey's trial, John Martirano claimed Al was killed as a favor to the Italian mafia, who felt that Al had become a loose cannon. Oh. 36-year-old James Sousa, who was an associate of the Winter Hill Gang, was arrested after a botched robbery. James and Whitey attempted to rip off a dentist by selling him fake gold bullion, it is believed that James was killed in October 1974 to prevent him from cooperating with the police. 36-year-old Paul McGonigal, a member of the Mullen gang, was shot dead in November 1974. Kevin Weeks helped investigators find Paul's remains in September 2000 in a grave near Tananan Beach in Dorchester. Whitey had tried to kill multiple had tried to kill Paul multiple times before, as he was the leader of a rival gang, but he accidentally killed Paul's brother Donald instead. Another innocent man killed because of mistaken identity. Paul and Donald also had another brother named Bobby McGonigal, who you may recall from earlier in our story as the ex-husband to Catherine Grieg. Of course! Apparently, the gang world is a small world guess so. That's wild. Right? Oh, I will also bring up another McGonagall fun fact that's wild. But we'll get there. 
Oh, God, I hope they're in these notes. Well, well I hope we'll get there. Uh, 42-year-old tavern owner Edward Connors was shot multiple times at a gas station in June 1975 because he witnessed the murder of the fourth victim, James O'Toole, and Whitey just didn't want any loose ends. Okay. Mm-hmm. Francis Buddy Leonard was shot in early November 1975. Whitey allegedly started a rumor that a man named Thomas King had murdered Francis and then fled as Francis was found shot in uh, Thomas's car. This led to a heated argument at Whitey's bar Triple O's between Whitey and Thomas, which turned into an outright, ball, outright brawl. Thomas King then went missing. His body was found in September 2000 in Quincy, thanks to Kevin Weeks. 47-year-old nightclub owner Richard Castucci was shot in the head in December 1976 after it was believed that Richard was an FBI informant. John Connolly told Steve Flemmy that Richard gave the FBI the location of the Winter Hill Gang's New York safe house. John Martirano admitted that Richard was lured to a house to be executed. The frank way they speak about murder is horrifying. Yeah. 26-year-old Deborah Davis was a longtime girlfriend of Steve Flemmy, who was 47 at the time. In September 1981, around the time that Deborah planned to leave Flemmy for another man, she mysteriously disappeared. Her body was found near the Neponset River in 2000, thanks to information from Kevin Weeks. Fleming allegedly lured Deborah to his mother's house, where he strangled her to death. Oh, God. Now, for the next vi victim, I have to explain the sport highlight. Some of you may have heard of it, some may have not. I only have ever heard of it because of the episode of Jackass, where Steve-O and Johnny Knoxville are lined up against the wall and professional highlight players are lobbing oranges at them. It is one of my favorite bits that they have ever done. And for those who are curious, apparently it's from season two, episode two. You know. Uh, highlight was invented in Spain and brought to the United States in 1904. It became one of the fastest growing sports in the 70s and 80s, where it became a huge on the gambling scene. Players used a long, curve-like basket thing to lob balls at a wall. An opposing team has to try and catch and return the ball before it touches the floor more than once. So Highlight, huge for gambling. And World Highlight was making a ton of money. The president of the company was 55-year-old Roger Wheeler, who, ha who had forcibly removed John Callahan as president. Callahan wanted his position back, and Whitey and Winter Hill wanted in on the gambling profits. So Whitey suggested Callahan buy the company from Roger. Callahan tried, but Roger refused. Then Whitey allegedly suggested if Roger wouldn't sell, maybe his widow would. My God. And that was enough to set things into motion. In May 1981, John Martirano flew to Oklahoma City, rented a car, and drove to Tulsa. He stopped at a bus station where he picked up a suitcase of guns that Fleming had sent to him. Then he spent five days tracking Roger before deciding to catch him in the parking lot of a golf course. Roger, Mar Martirano shot Roger in the head while sitting in his car, then put the suitcase back on the bus, drove to Oklahoma City, and flew to Florida. 
But the Roger Wheeler story isn't over just yet. 41-year-old Edward Halloran, who went by Brian, was at this initial meeting where Whitey and his associates first talked about killing Roger Wheeler. After Roger's death, Brian went to the FBI to tell them about the meeting. But the FBI, namely John Connolly, claimed he didn't believe Brian, and he sent Brian home. In May 1982, Brian was leaving a bar with his friend and neighbor, 32-year-old Michael Donahue, when their vehicle was gunned down. And while Whitey's crew were cleaning up loose ends from the Wheeler hit, they grew concerned that 45-year-old John Callahan wouldn't hold up to questioning. So when Callahan was visiting Florida, where Martirano lived, Martirano offered to pick him up at the airport. And when Callahan got in the car, Martirano went around back to put the luggage in the trunk and pull out the gun that he had and shot Callahan in the back of the head. He then put the body in the trunk, drove to another location, and abandoned the vehicle. So a total of four deaths, just from Whitey and his crew trying to get a piece of the high-lie gambling pie. That nicely rhymed, and I didn't mean for it to. (laughs) But if Whitey thought, that something belonged to him. He would stop at nothing until he got what he believed was he was owed. 45-year-old Arthur Bucky Barrett was a jewel thief and bank robber who was involved in a robbery of Depositors Trust on Memorial Day in 1980. Now, since the robbery happened in Medford, Whitey felt he was owed a piece, as nothing happened in Boston without Whitey getting his share. So Whitey and Fleming allegedly lured Arthur to a house on 3rd Street in Boston in July 1983. They chained him to a chair and tortured him until he admitted to where he hid the money. They left the house, went and collected $57,000 from different hiding spots, and when they returned to the house, they shot Arthur in the head. (sighs) As it was time before DNA testing... They removed Arthur's teeth and his fingertips and buried him in the basement of the house and covered the body in lime, which is, of course, very similar to John Wayne Gacy. Yet another classic True Crime and Cocktails episode callback. The house was owned by Michael Knee, brother of Pat Knee, who you may or may not recall from earlier in the story. Pat was basically a gang leader who eventually joined Winter Hill. He agreed to let Whitey and Flemmy use his brother's house to torture and bury victims, but he never bothered to tell the homeowner anything about it. Oh, boy. The vehicle, or the vehicle, the house became known as the Haunty, as it would eventually become the burial ground to three victims. The second Haunty victim was 32-year-old fisherman John McIntyre. John allegedly told authorities that Whitey was smuggling drugs and weapons to the Irish Republican Army on a ship called Valhalla. When the ship was seized, Whitey allegedly tied John to a chair and strangled him with a rope before shooting him in the back of the head in November 1984. As with Arthur, John's teeth and fingertips were removed before he was buried in the Haunty's basement. The third victim of the Haunty, and the 19th victim overall, is 26-year-old Deborah Hussey. Now, this is where things go from awful to outright horrifying. Trigger warning for sexual assault. Deborah was the daughter of Marion Hussey. 
Steve Flemmy's common law wife. It turns out that not only had Flemmy been molesting Deborah throughout most of her childhood, but he even started a sexual relationship with her when she was just 17 and he was 42. Oof. The relationship, which is not specifically a relationship, it's outright abuse, but you know what I'm yes. saying, continued until Deborah was 26, when she started getting in trouble with the police for sex work, which occasionally got her arrested. Whitey grew concerned that Deborah may slip and say something about them while she was in jail. So in January 1985, they lured Deborah to the haunty, where, according to Kevin Weeks, Whitey strangled her with his bare hands. Then Flemmy said he wasn't convinced she was dead, so he used a rope and a stick in a garrote fashion, similar to the murder weapon in the Jean Bonnet Ramsey case, and continued to strangle Deborah. Her teeth and fingertips were removed, and she was buried with lime in the basement. Somehow, most people just believed she simply ran away. Uh-huh. The bodies of Arthur Barrett, John McIntyre, and Deborah Hussey were all exhumed and moved to Flemmy's mother's house in Dorchester after the Haunties owner, Michael Nee, decided to sell the house in late October 1985, having no idea what was in his basement. Dear God. Their bodies were discovered in January 2000, thanks to information provided by Kevin Weeks, who admitted that he helped move the bodies. Oh. So I know that I have thrown a lot at you in a small span, but I felt like each victim needed to be mentioned. The trial lasted 35 days and featured 72 witnesses. Closing arguments lasted two days. Fun fact about the trial, while in the area filming a movie called The Judge... Robert Duvall spent several hours watching the the trial from the courtroom. I guess because he was playing the judge, but if you're going to have a movie about a judge, it should star Lauren Ash. Thank you. That's what I'm saying. The jury deliberated for 32 and a half hours over the course of five days. And on August 12th, 2013, Whitey Bulger was found guilty on 31 out of 32 counts of racketeering and firearms possession. He was also found guilty of 11 of the 19 murders, including the deaths of Paul McGonigal, Edward Connors, Thomas King, Richard Castucci, Roger Wheeler, Brian Halloran, Michael Donahue, John Callahan, Arthur Barrett, John McIntyre, and Deborah Hussey. Whitey was acquitted on seven of the murders, and the jury said they couldn't agree as to whether or not Whitey was responsible for the murder of Deborah Davis. On November 14, 2013, Whitey was sentenced to a two consecutive life sentences plus an additional five years. He was also ordered to pay $19.5 million in restitution. In September 2014, Whitey was taken to the penitentiary in Sumterville, Florida, for reasons I'm not aware of. On October 29th, 2018, Whitey was transferred to Hazleton Penitentiary, Penitentiary in West Virginia. It is home to about 1,300 inmates and has a history that is so violent it has been nicknamed Misery Mountain. Wow. Hazleton is well known to be unsafe for pedophiles, and informants. So it's interesting that Whitey, who was allegedly an FBI informant, would be sent there. In 2017, 
The year before Whitey was transferred there, Hazleton reported 275 violent incidents, which was up 15% from the year before. Wow. In 2018, Hazleton was locked down nine times for violence and weapons incidents. Two weeks before Whitey was transferred there, the correctional officers sent a letter to Congress on October 10th, 2018, pleading for more resources. At 6.45 p.m., Whitey Bulger arrived at Hazleton from Oklahoma City Federal Prison. He was immediately assigned to general population. At 9.53, he was sent to his cell. The doors of the cells automatically opened at 5 a.m. Around 6 a.m., two inmates, Freddie Gius and Polly DeCologero, uh, were seen on security cameras entering Whitey's cell with a shiv and a padlock wrapped in a sock. Correctional officers found Whitey dead at 8.20 a.m. He was beaten so badly that his eyes were swollen shut. He was 89 years old. Wow. Whitey's, Whitey's death was the 10th time that Hazleton Penitentiary was locked down that year. The Bulger family filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the Justice Department in September 2019, claiming that by transferring Whitey to Hazleton, he was, quote, deliberately placed in harm's way. There is simply no other explanation for the transfer of someone in his condition and inmate status to be placed in general population of one of the country's most violent federal penitentiaries. The lawsuit was dismissed by a federal judge in January 2022. Whitey Bulger has been the subject of numerous books and movies. He inspired characters such as Jack Nicholson's character in The Departed and James Wood's character in Ray Donovan. Whitey's capture and his status as an FBI informant inspired the 2013 TV series The Blacklist. Whitey and his politician brother Billy inspired the TV drama Brotherhood, which stars Jason Isaacs and Jason Clark. The 2015 movie Black Mass focused on Whitey's life while with Whitey portrayed by Johnny Depp and Whitey's brother play Billy played by Benedict Cumberbatch. And I'll say it, the movie has an insane cast. I mean, we're talking Jesse Plemons, Dakota Johnson, Peter Sarsgaard, Rory Cochran, David Harbour, Adam Scott, Kevin Bacon, Juno Temple. It goes on. And I'm sure that my husband thoroughly enjoyed all the times throughout the two-hour experience that I nitpicked things that were either wrong or simply left out of the movie. What can I say? I'm a delight. <laughs> uh, so I have a few final thoughts on uh, Whitey Bulger that there wasn't really a good spot to fit them in the rest of this episode. So I'm going to say them now because, again, I'm a delight. Yeah. So earlier... I said that Catherine Grieg and her twin sister, Margaret, had a difficult relationship. People outright described it as love-hate. I'm not sure when it started, but I'm sure it didn't help that people believed that Whitey murdered Paul McGonagall, who happened to be Margaret's husband. Right. And yeah... The sisters were married to a set of brothers, and that honestly has been our dream growing up, starting with Jordan and Jonathan Knight from New Kids on the Block. Yeah. They gave us the belief that it was possible, and really, it's just because we've always felt like sisters, we just wanted to be sisters legally, which I think is a really beautiful thing. Yeah. Uh, I also find it shocking that Catherine would pursue Whitey 
even after he killed her brother-in-law. Technically two of them. Uh, Because he also killed Paul's, one of Paul's other brothers. But maybe that's what she liked about him. Maybe she didn't like her brother-in-law. I don't know. Uh, Apparently, Whitey was quite suave when it came to the ladies. Mm. Uh, Also making the sisters' relationship difficult was the fact that when Catherine went on the run with Whitey, she left her beloved toy poodles, Nikki and Gigi, with Margaret. She felt the dogs would make them too easily spotted, and she's probably right. After a few years, while grieving the sudden loss of her own son, Margaret had the dogs euthanized for no reason. Oh my god! Which is horrifying at best, but, like, that's the biggest F you. Because those dogs were like her kids. So, it's wild. It's wild to me. Um, While on the lam, one sighting of Whitey was at a movie theater in San Diego at a viewing of The Departed. Um, which has uh, Jack Nicholson stars as a character that was inspired by Whitey. After he was caught, Whitey a- was asked if he'd ever been to San Diego. He said, quote, they have nice theaters, which I thought was like, he's got a little bit of a sense of humor. I'm not charmed by it. He's still a monster. Yeah. Uh, Whitey was described as an unabashed racist who apparently fought integration in the 1970s. Oh, woof. But apparently there were times when he put race aside for loyalty. During his time in Alcatraz, Whitey befriended a prisoner named Clarence Carnes, who was known as the Choctaw Kid. Carnes entered Alcatraz in 1945 and remained there until it closed in 1963. He was then paroled in 1973, but ended up back in prison for parole violations. He died in prison in 1988 and was buried nearby No ceremony, nothing fancy, just buried. When Whitey heard about this, he paid $10,000, which is equivalent to like $24,000 in 2022, to have Karn's body exhumed and reburied on sacred Choctaw soil in Karn's hometown of Daisy, Daisy, Oklahoma. Which almost makes you go, wow, that was really nice kind of forgetting what a horrible person he actually was. But the people of Southie saw Whitey as a hero, a modern-day Robin Hood figure. He was good with the people, helping out whenever he could. He handed out turkeys to low-income families on Thanksgiving. He would get his lackeys to help elderly people carry their groceries inside. The majority of people in Southie completely supported Whitey. That is, until they heard that he might be an informant, and then all bets were off. Because in Saudi, nothing is worse than being a rat. Which leads me to a side note that I literally just made moments before recording this episode. Side note! (laughs) (laughs) The Organized Crime Control Act was created in October 1970 to allow criminals to be informants who could help to convict other criminals. It led to the Federal Witness Security Program, known as WITSEC, or Witness Protection. And I I found this story, and it was wild, so I can't help myself. The first person initiated 
into the Witness Protection Program was Joseph Barboza Jr., known as The Animal. He was a mobster and hitman for the Patriarcha crime family in Boston during the 60s. After a few turbulent years, Barboza agreed to turn informant for the FBI. He was even the prosecution's primary witness in the murder of Edward Deegan in March 1965. Deegan had been marked for death after committing multiple burglaries with his partner, Steve Flemmie. Interesting. Mm. For agreeing to testify, Barboza, his wife, and their three kids were relocated to Santa Rosa, California, under the new name Bentley. Now, for unknown reasons, Barboza returned to Boston a year later, in May 1970, and spread word that he would recant his testimony for $500,000, which is equivalent to about like $3.7 million in 2022. He then contacted criminal defense attorney F. Lee Bailey, who you may recall from the O.J. Simpson trial and our Nicole Brown Simpson episode. Barboza was willing to sign an affidavit claiming that he had committed perjury at the Deegan trial and that the men who were convicted were actually innocent. He was also willing to admit that two FBI agents helped him fabricate his testimony. In July 1970, Barboza got pulled over by police and was found to have weapons and marijuana in his vehicle. So he was sent to jail. He pleaded with the FBI and said he would leave town without recanting his testimony. He was released, but then he was sent back to California because it turns out that in that single year that he was there, he killed someone? Oh I mean, my god! I mean, his name is The Animal, so I guess it makes sense. <laughs> You're right. But he was convicted in February 1971 of first-degree murder, but took a deal and only served five years. Right after his release, like, right after, he was gunned down by a hitman believed to be from Boston. Because Boston don't like no rat. I'm so sorry. Never don't, apologize for that. Don't know what's going on. The point is, in everything I've read and watched about Whitey Bulger, the point is that he's a monster, and I am not arguing that in any way. Fully agree. One thing I believe gets overshadows, overshadowed in all of this is what a fucking monster Steve Flemmy was. Flemmy applied for compassionate release in July 2021, claiming he was concerned about COVID. His parole was denied, his next review isn't until 2028 when he will be 20 or when he will be 93 years old. So hopefully he'll just stay where he is. Yeah. Uh, Whitey was incredibly smart and well-read, preferring to stick with books about World War II. When, when he was caught, police found a specific book on Whitey's bookshelf. The book was a memoir called Brutal, written by Kevin Weeks about his time with Whitey Bulger. Oh, my God. I know. Uh, And something I find wildly fascinating about Whitey is that he is a full monster, openly killing people or having people killed with little to no remorse. And yet, he was scared of needles. Uh, There is something about this disconnect between these two vastly different personalities coexisting within one person that is fascinating to me. He could strangle a wound with his bare hands, but couldn't handle to see an animal in any kind of pain. Again, this is advice that Whitey once gave a young gang member. Quote, 
don't just knock him out. Bite his fucking ear off. Bite his face off. Lift his arms up. Break his fucking ribs. Break his ankles. Hit all his spots. All his non-lethal spots. In short, make it memorable. So yeah, Whitey was a monster who had a soft spot for kids and animals. I saw photos, I saw a photo of him holding what looks like a baby cow or something, and he's happier than anything. I just don't, I can't comprehend these two people being the same one. And I also can't help but notice the irony that this love of animals is kind of what led to him getting caught. Yeah, that's interesting. If they weren't so friendly with the neighbors about these stray animals, then they probably wouldn't have been caught. Oh, and before I go, I have a conspiracy theory. Probably not much of a conspiracy. But I'm convinced the FBI, who had been publicly chastised over having Whitey as an informant, and the fact that they didn't do anything about him being on the run for so long, purposely transferred him to a prison that was outright known to be unsafe for informants. Especially when Whitey's informant status was highly publicized throughout his trial. So it's wild to me that he was even put in general population, let alone in a prison known for taking out informants. The FBI said they're investigating Whitey's death as a homicide, but to me, we've been doing this show long enough now that I know tying up loose ends when I see them. Allegedly, of course. Mm -hmm. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails... I'm barely hanging on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I disagree because you brought it home in a beautiful way. Uh, Listen, let's take one more break, refresh your drink, hit the loo one more time, and we're going to give you our final thoughts on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to the Whitey Bulger episode of True Crime and Cocktails. I'm going to jump right into my my notes. Uh, I love that his dad was a Newfie, Newfoundland. Um, it took everything I had not to say the harbor. I know. We, the, we're going home to the harbor. Get the lobster. Uh, it, that's, I mean, it's interesting, too, because you said his dad was abusive, right? That was, yeah. that was part of this. And I'm not saying that it's not possible for people from Newfoundland to be um, abusive, of course it is, but I just think of them as being such a happy people that I was surprised. But again, uh, obviously, sure. ab- abuse is everywhere, but you know. Um, now, I have one question. You mentioned yeah. that he had left school to join the Barnum & Bailey's circus, and you mentioned the term 
roustabout. Now, I, I'll be honest. I don't know what that mm. is. Uh, I'm assuming maybe it's like somebody who gets into the crowd and uh, does things. <laughs> Do you my know? Under- when I heard the term, my an immediate understanding goes back to my uh, experience uh, as a Disney fanatic. I assume like the guys in Dumbo that are setting everything up from the train. I think it it's like a you basically just are like a gopher. You do whatever needs to be done kind of a thing. Oh, is so my it's not even a performer. Okay, I, no. just, I just Googled it. It says an unskilled or casual laborer. I thought it meant like, oh, you're going to go rile up the crowd, like get them ready for the big show. Oh my God, you thought he was a hype man. I thought he was like a little hype man. Everybody, yeah. welcome. It's Whitey. <laughs> <laughs> Although you wouldn't call him that to his face. Nope, apparently never. Um, nope. I also wrote down, uh, shout out Steve-O, someone who also went and joined the circus which is ironic because later you brought up Jackass when talking about Highlight. So oh, there's a lot of synchronicities in this one, which is oh, wild. Oh, it's wild. Wild. Um, all right. It got pinched by the coppers and squealed. I just <laughs> wanted to write that down because, again, I like when Cooks comes out. Um, this MK Ultra reveal is wild. Now, I don't mm. – I feel like I remember us touching on, or rather you touching on – uh, when we talked about MK Ultra before, that of course it was they were testing it in prisons on inmates. Yeah. But I don't know if we knew that they were being injected with it for eight every day for eighteen months. Now I know that there is a lot of new research about the use of hallucinogenics uh, that can be very helpful to people with different mental health uh, issues. Um, I'm not condemning L- LSD in any way, however. Giving it to random people every day via injection also, Mm. um, to me, just feels like it's so extreme. And I I, again, it doesn't surprise me that maybe he had trouble sleeping for the rest of his life, et cetera, as I'm sure that potential many of those people did. That just feels like a lot of that's a lot of LSD. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I I can't remember the exact wording, but I had read something about uh, later in life. Whitey read that LSD in a that amount can lead to like some sort of like a chromosome problem. Oh, so he's was convinced that that could have led to the death of his son. Oh, he, interesting. He, he like he got it in his mind that something that these drugs had done something to him over the years, that and he that passed by the on. time, and then he had a son. And that that was something that uh, killed his son, which I'm sure enraged him more. Right. Interesting. I mean, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Again, we know a lot more now. And I, again, I'm not chastising the medical professionals that have been using it. I'm, I'm talking about back in the day where it feels like it was just, a, let's see what happens, which doesn't feel like the way to treat any humans. But anyway, oh. um, every time you said Flemmy. I just thought, like, phlegmy, like someone's sick with phlegm. And I was like, oh, God, this feels like an unfortunate word for her to have to say so many times on a time uh, week that she's so sick. Um, Again, the synchronicities. Oh, my God. It's really, there's so many. Nothing Uh, will be my favorite more than phlegmy and salemi. That was, again, wild. Now, I love the idea that he and and Teresa went to Alcatraz and they posed for a photo. It almost feels like two things to me. One, like a killer going back to the scene of the crime. 
or two, sure. hiding in plain sight. Because I don't know how much she knew about his criminal past or not. Did she oh. know that he had been in, in Alcatraz? Like, part of me wonders if she didn't know that. And so for him, it was like, well, I can't say no, because then she'll figure it out or, or whatever. That's, like, Oh, that's a great point. It's it just feels- the fact they're both wearing little hats that say property of Alcatraz. Like, they're both in, like, the black and white stripes. I think he's holding, like, the ball and chain, and she's got, like, a little prisoner of Alcatraz mug, like, and they're behind a set of bars, and, like, bless him, he's doing his best to be, like, vacation, but it's gotta be messing with his brain, but again, I will post that photo, because I couldn't believe when I found it. I was like, what are the odds that he would do that? It's just wild to me. It is. And you're right. Maybe she didn't know. Well, she he kept a lot from her specifically. And I know the oh, other girlfriends yeah. he didn't. So I'm just curious. It feels to me again like I I felt like my instinct was he was like, well, I'm not going to. Like she didn't know. So if she suggested let's go to Alcatraz, he was like, hey, buddy, okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> then I wrote down Schooners. Well, that sounds like a fun restaurant. <laughs> yeah. Come, come down to Schooners. Have a bite. We got half-priced apps on Wednesdays. I don't know. I anyway, hope it's in the harbor. Uh, yeah, exactly. Come down for our fresh harbor grabs. Harbor grabs. I don't know. Um, what a dink. dink I love it dink. so much. Um, not a hitman as he was never paid, just took gratuities for a job mm. well done. That is something that will never leave me. That idea of like, pay what you think it was worth. Like, are you kidding me? That's such a semantics debate. I can't. I, I am actually excited that he sold his life story because I would like that movie, but I want that guy. I yeah. want the guy that's like, just, you know, whatever you think it's worth. Oh, I, I, I don't do this for money. But like, I'll take a tip. <laughs> it's like, again, I'm like, where do you even begin to know how to tip on that kind of thing? You know what I mean? Like, you don't want to offend the guy, but then it's how much is over tipping. Like, there's so many. I it's know. Just there's, he's not exactly handing you the little pin pad where it's like tip 5, 10 or 15 percent exactly. or whatever. Like, it's like, what do you even? It's ridiculous. <sighs> it's interesting to me. Again, it feels like obviously I'm not. This is what I'm about to say is not a hot take. Clearly, we all know what I'm about to say. But it is interesting to me, again, that there was so many levels to which he evaded police capture, FBI capture, mm-hmm. et cetera. Again, Connolly, the one person who didn't testify against him, you know, was given that medical release a year ago because he had this fast-acting cancer, but a year later is still alive. And I would almost bet that maybe a miracle happened and in 10 years he'll still be alive. It just feels like they're so deeply connected. And as we know, this is where I go on this show, which is conspiracy. Because, again, there's so many – and I would spend so much time going back to all the times in this episode where you to- you said something about like, and the FBI, you know, should have done this but instead did this. And it's like it just feels, again, like they're not – I don't believe that they're incompetent in situations like this. I believe that it is the more chilling, which is, you know, allegedly. Mm. Um, again, the fact that his brother wouldn't testify, so had to resign, but still gets that 200K a year pension. Like, these are all things to me, know. you know, that just feel like, anyway. Um, <laughs> dropping Teresa in a Chili's parking lot and then never speaking to her again is worse than a lot of my breakups, and I've had bad ones. 
It's the fact that it was specifically a Chili's. Yep. It sure was. It sure was. Uh, Now, again, Catherine Gregg, or Grieg, her name spelt G-R-E-I-G, made me think of Greg Norrie from uh, Canadian band Treble Charger, who spells his name G-R-E-I-G. That's relevant to, you know, such a small percentage of our listeners, but had to say it anyway. Um, I liked it. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. What was my next point? I'm almost, I'm almost there. I'm almost there. I mean, again, this was like, this was such a fascinating episode because there was so much, there's so much to get through and so much I didn't know before. Uh, Jeremiah O'Sullivan, all again, my brain, my song brain, Jeremiah was a bullfrog is all I could think about. And that, that made me think <laughs> of the episode of the X-Files where Scully sings that. And that's when we find out that Scully has a terrible singing voice. Shout out to all the X-Files fans who are listeners of our show. Now, the image of uh, the two old men going, you suck. Fuck you. Okay. Fuck you too. That I, I, I am going to put out there that I would like us to film a reenactment of that, uh, dressed as old men. Um, we maybe do like a, like a green screen on zoom. So we put us in a courtroom or whatever. I'm just saying, I think that that's something I'm going to have to be whitey cause he wore a beard. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> and my fans are going to want to see this in a beard. <laughs> Your fans are going to want to see the beard. Yeah, listen, you spoiled us with William Riker. So it's um, all I'm saying is I've put it out there and uh, now that means it has to happen. I can't believe October's um, so far away. Fuck you too, okay? I mean, this works out because I really did want that line. Fuck you too, okay? That That's such a, I love, there's so much about that that's just so funny. I just want to, you saw, like, <laughs> Again, I think this might be our finest work. I, uh, I can't wait. I hope we come up with a name like the like something more catchy than the True Crime and Cocktails players. Of course, and we just and everyone's like, you should do a live event. And we're like, yes, and jokes on them. It's just us doing recreations of court from different trials throughout. I mean, that might be better. I mean, my McConaughey doing the monologue from the end of a Time to Kill is going to be inspired and thank god because i won't be attracted yeah exactly it's a safe space it's a safe whereas space for us. if if you want to play if you want to play dan fielding from night court then we're in trouble big big problems ahead um you brought up the movie the judge have you seen that movie and have you seen I it lately not. okay this is a spoiler so people skip ahead 30 seconds if you don't want this but sure. robert downey jr's character in that movie and i've only seen it once and i'm really going to, I'm sure, muddle the details. But from what I remember, he goes back to his hometown. Is this the same movie? I feel like he goes back to his hometown. I, should, I shouldn't have gone down this road before I double-checked that this was the right movie. But anyway, I think it is. Long story short, he, he hooks up with this young gal who's far too young for him. And then oh. it turns out that, uh-oh, maybe he actually was her father. And I was like, did we need that element in this story? Because it was kind of superfluous to the main plot of the movie. And I just felt like, why? Anyway. Hmm. Final thought. And this is the one where I actually give you something other than a chucklehead, uh, you know, just chaotic rambling, which is psychologist hat on. I do find it fascinating that Whitey had this ability potentially to be so brutal to do, you know, could potentially kill people with his bare hands. He was this criminal mastermind, et cetera. But then he also, as you have said, had this soft spot for children and for animals. And he couldn't um, he couldn't handle the image, for example, of fishing, which I think is very interesting because that is a very visceral 
thing to see. Uh, sure. I get that. Um, to me, it feels like it's it, it stems directly to his relationship with his father's abuse. So to me, it is that he equates, um, you know, wanting to be someone who can stand up to his father, you know, wishing that he could have been the person who was that way when his father was abusing him as a child. So that's that one side of him. But then the other side is that really wanting to protect innocence, um, you know, and innocence, of course, in the world being children, animals. And then often you'll sure. add, you know, the elderly to that list. Um, again, I don't know whether or not he was brutal about the elderly or not. But um, certainly children and animals would be considered innocence in general. And so I just I think that it it's kind of, it kind of makes sense to me. It, it, it's that that again the way that it, the abuse manifested for him was that he wanted to be this tough guy when it came to people that were deserving in his mind, quote unquote. Um, he was okay with operating in that way when it was someone who you know had done something or was at that level. But if you were innocent as he was when he was a child. He couldn't tolerate that. And it, that was sure. probably subconscious for him. I don't think that he consciously was making those connections. I'm, I don't know that Whitey Bulger had done a lot of therapy or self-reflection on why I he had those feelings. I doubt it. Uh, I highly doubt it. But you know what I mean? Like, I think it's interesting um, because it can go – I think also it depends on – and I, as everybody who listens to the show knows, I'm not an expert, obviously, but speaking in the general terms about the, the, the you know, some of the readings that I've done over the years, um, obviously, uh, no two abuse cases of, of children are the same. But in, in this situation, this is how it manifested for him, I think. And I think it's also interesting because he had he had a lot of siblings so yeah. if if he was the only child, for example, in the home where he was enduring abuse from a parent. I think that psychologically that will affect you in a different way than if you are potentially one of six. Was he the only one getting abused? Were they all getting abused? You know, like I think that there's so much nuance to how that can affect somebody in the long term. And I think that, again, whether or not we know those details, um, I think the two things are connected. And and for whatever reason for him, that's how it manifested to him. Again, like in his mind, it's like – he, he lost the ability to have empathy if he felt that you deserved it or that you were, you know, at a certain level. But if you were innocent to him, that was deplorable, untouchable, et cetera. And again, I think that was him just feeling true um, pain for his childhood self, which again – now I'm thinking about there's some sort of like, you know, mafia in therapy sketch idea. But uh, again, it's just because the writer never stops. Um, but listen, again, it's all fascinating. And I think, again, it's it's interesting to me also that he – because, again, along those lines – this is the last thing I'll say. Along those lines, it's interesting to me that he wanted this this world with Teresa. He bought the house. She had the kids. He was there almost every night for dinner for 30 years. They had they ran away together. She was, I'm sorry to use this term. I'm using it through his lens. She was, for all intents and purposes, his first choice when he had to flee, right? Yeah. We know he had multiple girlfriends, but he went to yeah. Teresa. That was his whatever. It's yep. interesting to me that it's like he wanted that life, but he couldn't fully 
engage it. He couldn't fully do it. He needed to have other women, his own space, all of those kinds of things. And But again, he kept her innocent. He wouldn't allow her to know all of the details, right? She didn't know that he had these other things going on. But with these other girlfriends, like um, Christine, was that the other one's name? Catherine um, and Catherine, uh, I'm so sorry. Catherine. Yeah. She knew about Teresa. So you see what I mean? Like, it's interesting to me that it's like Teresa, t- to me, it feels like he viewed as this innocent, at least at the, you know, for the bulk of their relationship. Sure. He kept her innocent. But Catherine, he didn't as much because she knew about Teresa or whatever. So it was almost like he was willing to, you know, in terms of how that split, because I agree with you, it's it's like there was a bit of a split that happened in his brain, which makes sense. There could have been, I don't think that he was like multiple personality by any extent, but I do think that that the psyche can split off and and break in certain ways when you are endure abuse as a child. And so- sure. um, you know, it is interesting to me again that it was like that 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 and and that also to your other point, he never seemed to want to be alone, which is also interesting. That it was like as soon as Teresa was like, "I can't do this anymore," he was like, "Okay, cool, I'll call you later." Never talks to her again. Picks yep. up Christine and is like, "Hey, listen, Catherine, I don't know why I keep calling her Christine." Catherine uh, picks up Catherine and goes, "Let's hit the road. We're going." Like. That's interesting to me that it that 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 again for someone who on paper you would see as, you know, well he's this cold blooded blooded killer has some of the traits obviously of a sociopath etc. It's like but couldn't be alone, didn't want to be alone, wanted to have a companion, didn't want to go on the run by himself, and to me again, that's what speaks to 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 I believe whatever the nuance of living in that child that childhood home was, that's how it manifested. Oh, it's more than possible. Like, I'm also convinced that's why he had to have women overlapping. So if one of them leaves him or if he gets tired of one, easy, gets rid of her, he automatically already has a backup going. And I mean, and it's possible he kept Teresa in that innocent place because Teresa represented, like, an outside of crime life that he could have had. He could have had the the wife and the kids and the family purely innocent working for construction. And then, I mean, Catherine knew about it from the beginning because, good God, he potentially killed her brother-in-law and his brother. So there's no way she didn't know what was going on with him. And I think part of her was very cookies and that she was like, oh... I see that power. I get it. Right. So who knows? Whereas she was just like, I'll, I'm willing to put up with this. It's fine. And who knows how long she knew about Teresa. She could have found out about her at any point. She could have known about her for years or just found out about her. I don't know. But it's just, it's the idea that she no longer was willing to be, she knew she was the runner up. Right. She was no longer willing to be that number two, hoping to blow up their whole relationship, goes and then tells him, oh, yeah, hey, guess what? I know about it and tells Teresa everything. And Teresa's like, wait a minute. I had no idea he was with someone. And it's like, yeah, he's been with me for 20 years. But what's interesting about that, too, is that he didn't feel any need to get retribution towards Catherine. So it seems. Well, I think because at that point, he had the two of them. 
And then if he lost Teresa, then he's alone. Is he going to pick up a girl on the fly like and, and run with her? She won't know why he's running. Right. So I really think that's the only thing that saved her life is he just doesn't want to be alone and he needed her. Right. But I think she had hoped that would be enough. It would break them up and she would just move right up into top position, which is what she wanted. And in the end, she got what she wanted because she was the one he came back for. And she, within like being told, oh, yeah, by the way, he's back. He's coming back. And she's like, great. I'll pack a bag. Let's go. And she was just willing to drop everything in like a moment and leave. I just yeah. feel like I, I don't think I could. I mean, look. If there's suddenly like a loud banging on the door and I open it one afternoon and it's Dave Grohl and he's like, oh my God, oh my God. Okay, look, I can't say much. Just get your bags. I mean, I'm going to think about it. <laughs> I don't yes. think I'm not going to be able to do it. But for a, a very brief moment, I'm going to be like, whoa. Mm -hmm. I mean, first, I'm going to be like, for the love of God, Dave Grohl, how do you know where I live? How long has this been going on that you haven't told me? <laughs> but, yeah. But, like, I just can't imagine the moment of, like, you have to leave in this moment. And you can't talk to anybody. I mean, they spoke with friends of theirs for, I think, the first year and a half that they were gone. And the majority of those friends ended up getting indicted for, you know, speaking to fugitives and not telling the police where they were. Of course. Um, but then they had to cut off contact with everyone and go over 10 years. And again, she loved those dogs. So the thought that she gave up those dogs for him? Him? I mean, well, and that's sad to me too. You know? Catherine, you should have, you know... No, yeah, you, no one should be asking you to go on the run from the police and, and, and also leaving your dogs. Like, that's, no, oh. come on. I can't, I can't imagine, but also at the same time, she knew if she was ever going to have him, this was her time. Because she knew yeah. if she said no, he's gone and she'd never hear from him again. Yeah. She weighed the options. Well. Listen. And then again, kudos to her. Didn't want to testify against him. Did her time. Moved on. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Christy Oxborough, what a fantastic episode of this show. And truly, what an amazing rallying on your part. Well done. You really showed a tenacity uh, and a willingness to work while uh, desperately ill. So uh, on behalf of everyone, we thank you for your work as always, but especially this week because you really pulled it out of the fire. It's... Uh, it's this is going to sound very dramatic. It's been really touch and go. <laughs> I get it. I get and it. And also to feel my nose closing itself while I'm speaking. And I'm like, oh, I'm I'm going to have to say that word. That word's not going to come out sounding like it's supposed to. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to listen back to this episode, I think. I think that's okay. Probably. But again, I mean, comes out in like three days. I know. <laughs> so, again, 
to the wire. It's who we are. Yep. It's, who we it's are. Uh, listen, we pulled it off. Uh, and thank you, dear yeah. listeners, for joining us on this wild journey uh, on the road with Whitey Bulger. Uh, if you haven't already, give us a follow on our social medias on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails, on Twitter at Not Detectives. And if you'd like a little more of our chaotic chucklehead content, go over to Patreon, patreon.com slash True Crime and Cocktails, where we offer bonus episodes, monthly live Q&As. Uh, our bonus episodes have a lot of uh, extra cut for time information from the episodes, extra little true crime bonuses. It's a whole lot of fun. And you can vote in a poll to help choose one of our monthly episodes that we do on this feed. So check that out if you are interested. And the only place to get official True Crime and Cocktails merch is our merch store, truecrewmerch.com. So check that out as well. Uh, Christy, do you want to tell the people about next week's episode of the show? Um, I do. Um, and it's going to happen in a side note. What? This is unprecedented. I know. I I mentioned earlier that I was going to help sum them up at the end of the episode. And it just works very organically, all of this. I'm also going to say before I read all of these, the episode we are doing next, we planned out long before I even ever started researching Right. This week's episode, so I didn't know. But as mentioned throughout the episode, there have been a lot of weird synchronicities throughout this episode. Um, I mean, starting with the fact Whitey Bulger was first mentioned in episode 56, Gardner Museum Heist. Right. That was when I first mentioned him. And as I kept saying it, I realized I must have said it in that episode because it's very familiar. The concept of if it happens in in Southie, it, Whitey gets a piece. Because that was the whole thing of if the heist happened, Whitey would have gotten a piece he would have been interested in getting in on that deal. Right. Uh, Whitey took part in MK Ultra, which was mentioned in episode five, Berkshire's UFO, burying bodies in a basement and covering them with lime. Episode 52, John Wayne Gacy. Deborah Hussey was killed with a garrote. Episode 21, Jean Benet Ramsey. I organically and somewhat seamlessly uh, referenced episode 40, Marilyn Monroe, and episode 67, Bob Crane. Uh, in a side note, I mentioned F. Lee Bailey, who was OJ's one of OJ's defense lawyers from episode 71, Nicole Brown Simpson. And then, in my research, I found out that Whitey was fascinated with a specific pair of criminals. Like, he was obsessed with them to the point where he sent photos of these criminals to, like, his friends throughout his life. Like, he would just send them photos of them. Um, They were almost like heroes and idols to him, which is wildly fascinating. Those criminals just happened to be the subject of our next episode. So, I will also say... Next week, because our timing is weird, we actually aren't going to be here. That's right. There is no episode on, what is that, May 3rd? May 3rd. Couldn't have been sick at that point. Had to be sick before that. It's Mm -hmm. fine. What's done is done. But we will be back on May 10th with the next episode of True Crime and Cocktails, Bonnie and Clyde. What are the chances the synchronicities are going nuts? So, yes, come back May 10th. We're going to talk Bonnie and Clyde, Whitey Bulger's uh, favorite celebrities, apparently. I other, guess. 
other than Mark Wahlberg. Um, and uh, I am very excited to what you to find out what you find out about that. Uh, Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Dave Cole. Good night, future time traveling us. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.